comment section at Dispatch Fan Podcast. That is the scented candle in the dark sewers of internet takes. I'm Kevin from Texas, and uh, thank you for joining us as we continue discussing the Dispatch, politics, current events, pop culture, and more. And indeed, this week we'll actually be talking about education policy. So let me go ahead and introduce the other fans joining the fan pod today. Uh, we've got Ben from Oregon. Hey, Ben. Yo. Um, just to add more confusion, we've got the other Ben, Ben from Texas, from the from the worst part of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, how's it going, Ben? Excellent. Then we've got Benjamin from West Virginia. How, how's it going, Benjamin? Great. It's great to be here. We've got Alan from Georgia. Hey, Alan. Greetings. Angie from Ohio. How's it going? Hi, everybody. It's going good. And of course, we've got uh, Doug from Arizona. How's it going, Doug? Good afternoon, everybody. And joining the pod for the first time this week, we've got Clifford from Washington. Welcome, Clifford. Yo, yo, yo. How's it going? Pacific Northwest! Woot! Yeah, we've got a little bit too much representation up there, but that's okay. That's okay. And we may be joined later but in the pod by Jack from Kentucky because we do not have enough people on this podcast this episode. So uh, he'll, he'll be dropping in if he's got an opportunity. So anyway, each week we like to talk about the best of the dispatch, uh, whether it's the best newsletter, morning dispatch, podcast, or guest contribution. Because, of course, we're not affiliated in any way with the dispatch. We're just a group of fans. So, uh, But let's go around the room and around the room. <laughs> let's go around the group and find out uh, what we thought was the best of the dispatch this week. So let's, uh, let's start with Clifford. What was the best of the dispatch for you this week? Hmm, I really liked uh, the... Isger's new lawyer, the sweep on um, was Trump good for the gap? Just thought that was a different, all the stuff in there I thought was interesting, uh, especially just the getting into the David Shore interview in which they uh, took a different angle on uh, the everything's turnout theory instead of arguing that Trump actually, or the Trump movement at least had some level of persuasion and that's actually why he got inroads to different uh, minority groups and the like. Yeah, I also really appreciated uh, appreciated the morning dispatches continuing coverage of uh, the situation in Burma. Uh, the morning dispatch hit on that on the sixteenth, and I've got friends from Burma, friends in Burma, so it's something I'm I'm appreciate that they are keeping an eye on and informing me of. Yeah, absolutely. I want to see Tyrewalt take on Shore at some point. Chris Tyrewalt versus David Shore would be an awesome remnant like guest podcast. What do you guys think? Yes, fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Yeah, and we, and we wouldn't even have to say it's a you know a guest because you don't know if it's Jonah or if it's Chris that that's on there. Whatever that <laughs> there so. Well, that's great, Clifford. Thanks uh, for that. How about uh, Benjamin from West Virginia? What was your uh, what's the best of dispatch for you this week? Sure. Yeah, my favorite, um, as it often is, was David's Sunday newsletter, um, the Sunday French Press on um, cruelty is apostasy, talking about Beth Moore leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I'm not a Southern Baptist, but I have um, a lot of friends who are. And I found that really interesting, just talking about the state of the church as a whole, um, talking about, you know, just kind of dispositional differences as opposed to ideological differences. He said, you know, which has been most salient um, you know, to individual believers over the last five years. Is it the fact or the manner of disagreement? Because, you know, obviously there's always um, disagreement, you know, within the church. I think, you know, those of us here who are um, Christians, I think we're all from, from different denominations and um, faith traditions. And so, you know, there's always been debate and disagreements and, and church splits and things like that. Um, but I think he's definitely right that over the last um, several years, it's it's become much more um, pugilistic in our in our online discourse. 
um, especially. And there's this kind of this overwhelming sense that that these really big issues, as long as you're right on these big hot button um, cultural or doctrinal issues, it justifies um, how you defend those issues. And that um, rather than actually conforming um, to God's law for how we should um, debate and discuss issues and talks about, again, going back to the title that that cruelty is apostasy, that treating people, uh, attacking them in, in, in um, ways that are um, sinful and aggressive and things like that um, is, in fact, you know, wrong. And that it's important to have both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, correct doctrine and correct um, practice in the issue, and important to focus on focus on grace, even when um, the stakes are high. So I found that really interesting. Um, again, talking about that orthodoxy, orthopraxy um, split that often gets um, corrupted, that it's so important to have both, that you can't just be, you know, discernment blogger or whatever, railing against um, all these people you hate. Um, you should actually focus um, on the issues in your own house and the issues in your own um, church and life and community and focus on community and truth um, with grace. So I found that really, really insightful as his, as his Sunday pieces typically are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having come off of uh, working on some litigation that involved battling Baptists uh, that were members of the Southern Baptist Convention and, and seeing the inner workings of that, it's uh, it's uh, to the point where they're suing each other. Let's put it that way. So, but that's, that's a good one. Thanks, Benjamin. Um, Alan, what about you? What was the best uh, for the dispatch this week? Well, being a sucker for uh, palace intrigue, I'm going to go with uh, Haley uh, Birdwilt's uh, Who Runs the House GOP. And uh, I thought that was, that was Yeah, I uh, thought that was interesting. You know, someone commented, uh, never have I heard so much about Magic the Gathering in about, uh, oh, I don't know, quarter century here. Oh, Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene. That's, every time I see MTG2, I think Magic the Gathering. But, uh, Dude, you're not the only one yeah and uh well i thought it was interesting i think he's like well you know i won't have to retaliate against liz cheney if i let some of the serious serious antics go on and although i'm all for keeping uh liz cheney around um i think some of the other letting the antics go is going to ultimately blow up in his face you're like making motions to adjourn all the time and uh you know, I guess they contrast it when, uh, oh, about eight years ago, taking a, you know, on one budgetary vote, uh, you know, they kicked people off committees, and now it's uh, <laughs> they're a far cry from that. So, yeah, it was pretty ugly. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, Ben from Oregon, what was the best of this batch for you? Yeah, it was actually this morning. I was uh, listening to Jonah's uh, his ruminant ruminating on his thoughts on the road and stuff like that, and he was talking about a trip that he had to Prague, and he talked about. Uh, interesting concept about sort of that politics can be for a lot of people sort of like um, a fashion choice or an accessory rather than sort of a, a deeply seated sort of sense of things where he's met people who look really radical, who have very conventional views and very conventional lives. Uh, and then he's got met people who like, you know, who look like the straightest, like straightest straights you could ever meet. And they're just so, radical in the ideas that they're, that they're coming up with. If you encounter people who have like really radical views and lifestyles that some, that they oftentimes don't feel the need to telegraph that uh, in the way that they say dress or be, or, or, you know, stuff like that, or the sort of the signaling that they're sending out to other people. And there's this big difference between those two things. And I, I thought it was interesting. I think that was fascinating. I think it's fascinating. As I'm trying to think in my, in my own life, how much of 
how much of the politics is sort of like my decision to like wear fun, like t-shirts or something like that. And how much of it is stemming from views that I have trying to see how much of my life is sort of an, where politics is an accessory. I know that for me, it's a, it's partially an outlet. It's sort of an area of frustration. It's this area of uh, curiosity of trying to figure things out of understanding sometimes. So I don't know. What do you all think? Do you all, do, do, do you know people who are like, they, they, they like put themselves out there as really radical, but they're really, really sort of like conventional or even boring. And then like some of the most interesting people, you know, maybe kind of follow that thing or is it sort of, how does that work in your lives? I mean, I could maybe go with like some of the people I went to concerts with when I was a teenager, they would all dress like weird and stuff, but they were mostly nice people. There was a concert once where I lost my wallet. Wasn't a person in that room who did not have some kind of like mohawk or piercing or like patch on their shirt, but I got my wallet back with everything in it. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Clifford, you're in the Pacific Northwest, so you know what I'm talking about. You got all these people out there like like really radical they are, and then, well, not so much. Well, and I'm also, though, like I'm in a more conservative part of the Northwest, so my experience is more... Yeah, I guess if people, I feel like people do tend to dress according to their uh, radicality in my own experience. Like I'm thinking especially of, I suppose, younger people, um, especially those who, um, in the music or artistic scenes, especially since that's, I live in a city that's very much driven by engineers and scientists. So to be even just uh, artistic or whatever, you have to buck the trend. And they too also tend to have I suppose it's just going to be more countercultural personalities in general who are going that way in my area. So there are going to be, so if they're, if they're dressing radical, they also probably do have radical beliefs to match that up. And I'm thinking especially of in my case, the music scene is where that doesn't line up, especially more indie or just the, the local artists who are trying to make it in the local music scene. Uh, yeah, there's you know, a lot of sort of crazy dress, but there's also actually crazy ide- ideologies that tend to go along with that as well. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean crazy like pejoratively here. I mean like they, but you know what some people would deem radical, I guess. Yeah, but some, what is interesting about radical things that Jonah was talking about is just that some people will espouse radical ideas. But like for instance, uh, the idea that um, you know the, some of the people who espouse the most radical ideas don't practice what they preach. They live very, very conservative, traditional sort of lifestyles. And this is something that I think that like Benjamin, you're about to go into college and you're about to encounter all kinds of people who are. And you probably see this a lot in high school who are all about sort of finding and expressing themselves in these really out there ways. They don't want to be conventional at the same time. That doesn't, even though they may take on sort of the, the image or um, start having certain talking points, they don't actually behave that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely get what you mean. Um, there's, you know, quotes, people say, you know, not, nothing's as, as conventional as nonconformity because everyone wants to not conform in the same ways, um, not conform to societal norms, but they end up doing it in, in a lot of very similar ways. So I think it's interesting, yeah, um, kind of comparing desire um, to rebel, especially in, in people's younger years, yeah, in high school and college, um, for sure, um, with what they actually do, or is it anything really um, that radical? Um, or is it just, you know, a lot of the people I know, you know, they, they basically virtue signal on Instagram, and that's most of their of their radicalism um if it can even be called that yeah i I think definitely there's a lot of people um 
as, as they grow older who believe that people should have you know the freedom to live all sorts of different ways but um and support those choices uh but then live fairly conservatively themselves i think that's definitely definitely true yeah, I think it kind of builds on on Jonah's, you know, from a couple weeks, was it a couple weeks ago now with the doubling down on the yeehaw. It's just kind of the opposite of that. This idea that, you know, in Texas, you, know, you don't, you can, you can show your, your conservative you know, bona fides or bona fides or however you say it. Um, but you can show that by wearing your cowboy boots and driving your big truck, even if you, you know, don't pay any attention and don't really have any conservative ideals or live that way. So uh, just or interesting. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting. He's he's uh, he's continuing kind of down that theme. Well, hey Ben uh, from Texas, kind of segue for you. What's what was the best of the dispatch for you this week? Uh, I'd probably have to go with the G file, which, which I guess is just like an hour ago. I just read it before I came on, but I've always been for like five years. I've been trying to tell people that Trump is not conservative, and like. Nobody seems to care. Like on either side, nobody seems to care. It's like he got a lot of mileage out of the anti-socialism stuff, but when it comes to actual government spending and all that stuff, nobody seems to care. So I'm glad somebody does, Jonah. Oh, I agree with you completely. It's one of my biggest frustrations is this notion that somehow Trump is a conservative. A guy wasn't even a Republican until what, 2009 or something like that, uh, donated tons of money to the Clintons. You know, and somehow he doesn't live a conservative lifestyle, doesn't espouse conservative beliefs, but was able to just hijack it. Um, and now we're just redefining conservatism to basically mean whatever Trump likes. So I agree with you, Ben. It's a at least at least Jonah's uh, continuing to to uh, to preach, I guess you could say. So, well, on, on that one, how about uh, Angie from Ohio? What was the best of the dispatch for you this week? I have to go with the dispatch live. They're my favorite generally. I like this time that I saw the tension between all the different views and that they still, for the most part, remain friendly. Um, I also was appreciative of Sarah's uh, pro-women part. I, one of the things I like best about her is she's very adamant about that. It's interesting you say that, Angie, because I saw on Twitter, I don't, I'm not a big Twitter person, but I, I remember seeing, or I, I saw someone say, Something to the effect of this is one reason I like the dispatch is because, you know, this this contentious topic and how they were able to handle that kind of debate. So I think I think other people saw that as well. What do you anybody else kind of see that tension and kind of enjoy that they were able to continue having a discussion over a, a weighty topic yet yet keep it civil? I didn't get to see it. I missed it. I haven't seen the recording come out yet. So I've got to check it out. That thanks for that reminded me about seeing that Angie, but I've heard them deal with this beforehand in the past. And there's just this element where you separate yourself and the other people from the topic and everyone can sort of talk about it with that element of removal. I think Doug talked about this a few podcasts ago about having a sense of removal of yourself from the issue and that they all, they're all able to really practice that and do that really effectively. Yeah. And I think just being able to not just do it effectively, but show others how to do it. I think that's something that's missing so much uh, from, from, the public, something I had in mind a long time ago about, you know, the vision of creating my own podcast one day uh, would be everybody sitting around drinking beers and, and talking about weighty topics, but being friends at the end of the day. And that's kind of what they do. Uh, you know, I'll have their drinks and, and talk about weighty topics. And they're, they're usually agreeing on a lot of things. So it was nice to kind of see that a disagreement, that tension, but, you know, friendship at the end of all of it. So I think that's definitely needed. Um, Doug, uh, I think you might be 
last, but you're never least. Uh, what was your uh, best of the dispatch this week? So I, I liked uh, Jonah's conversation about earmarks. Um, you know, I think he, he comes uh, very honestly, of course, to it from uh, back when Republicans got rid of earmarks, which they before used to like earmarks, and now they're that was a Tea Party thing, as he indicates. Um, but now that they're back, he's he's he seems a little uncertain. But I want to reinforce what I think about it, which is. Um, I view earmarks as actually collaborative government. I think it really lets Republicans in on having the opportunity to uh, to participate. And um, I think that's good. So I, I think earmarks are a good way to bring together in a process or in even if it's just uh, bimodal black and white. I like this. I like that. I don't like this, but I still get to put it in because it's an earmark. I think that's actually progress. So that's that's what I think for the uh, for this week. No, I, I, I'm glad you said that because I, I like that too. And I thought it was interesting that um, it was kind of the the point that you're you're kind of making the same point Jonah was making, and that's that you know it it allows at least it allows some kind of collaborative government instead of it's all one side versus all the other. And and I get because I you know I was on the bandwagon too back in the get rid of earmarks day, but. You get rid of earmarks, and now there's just 100% incentive to uh, not negotiate with the other side, not not try to, you know, well, I'll go ahead and vote for this if you give me give me that. And uh, I, I kind of see his point there, and I think uh, it's interesting, Doug, that we're moving in the same direction on that. It strikes me when I'm following a lot of it, like the, you think about the earmarks for me, and I'm, I'm with you, Kevin. I was sort of more like it might be a little bit. Better and if if they this wasn't the way that we were doing things sometimes that like in order for to buy enough votes for something we have to give people what they want in these particular districts in exchange for these votes for these bigger projects or for this bigger spending and it strikes me that really what was at the heart of that is sort of a, a thing that happens a lot in in politics where we become very focused on a process or an, a way of doing things rather than sort of what lies behind the principles and ideas that are going on. In those things, so we got rid of earmarks, and then administrations took over doing the job that was being done by Congress, and then Congress turned into lobbyists to get the to get the earmarks that way through the executive branch, rather than doing it themselves this way. So the thing was is that that was ex it was expressing a way of doing things, and that it was going to find a path one way or the other. And so if people wanted to change those things, they have to change why it is that we do that in the first place, rather than the process by which it was done. Yeah, and then look how partisan it got too. I mean, immediately, so they ban earmarks, right? And then immediately it's Obamacare gets passed without a Republican vote, right? And it's just been that way for 10 years where everything's all one side or the other. And and there's just, I don't know, maybe it's not obvious to everybody else. I'm sure for you guys, some of you might feel the same way, but it's isn't it just obvious how important sometimes that some legislation is bipartisan, especially when it's huge and sweeping? So if you can get you... Uh, a library named after you so that you can have a vote and that we don't do everything just every two years you browbeat one side vote in the next group browbeat the other uh and that's not very good for our democracy uh, but some of the some of these earmarks are really do serve the public local interest i mean counties can get roads police or sheriffs can get equipment um, schools can get something i mean it depends on on the region but Somebody is positively, generally affected. I mean, yes, there's always some bad examples, but I think there's probably 
for Republicans and Democrats, more good examples than bad of earmarks going to the public good. So implicit, implicit in this is the idea that with earmarks back, all of a sudden, everyone's going to be bipartisan. So my guess is watch for that and you won't find it. I don't think that everyone will be bipartisan necessarily, but it would be nice if we're going to have a big sweeping uh, piece of legislation that changes one sixth of the economy that, uh, you know, maybe just for once you get a a vote from the side that didn't propose the legislation. Um, And if that does happen in a way, it depoliticizes things because we don't have to live on this partisan edge. It doesn't have to be a flight 93 election every single election. Um, we can go back to some of the I would not underestimate at all the, the value of joint participation, even if it's to us, you know, um, covered by a political process that may seem uh, not not as participated or collaborative as we would like from a debate point of view. But in the end, there is participation, and I think that's a great first step to working together. You're at least working uh, by remote distance from one hall down, yelling down to the other hall. At least you're getting on the same floor and voting for the other guy's um, earmark. You have to vote for the other guy's earmark, right? That's in the end what's got to happen. Yeah, maybe Madison Cawthorn will fire one of his uh, public uh, relations folks and, and actually hire a, uh, a policy person for his staff instead of just running around getting YouTube hits. So. Well, uh, oh, Ben, I think you wanted to say something. I was going to to to, to sort of comment on this whole the, the debate here. That's uh, I think that something that the other Ben, who I think might have also been trying to get at about this as well, is that um, one of the reasons I don't think that we're going to see necessarily a big reduction in partisanship is is as you mentioned the healthcare. One of the reasons that like things like the filibuster, things like um, partisanship has has climbed in the last 30 years so high is that it correlates also with the fact that the government is just a, a lot bigger than it was 90 when it was back in the 1990s and the larger it is the more the, the the greater the stakes are for any part of of any election it's it's the case that these elections were less meaningful and state elections were more meaningful once in the past and I mean, no Benjamin W. Would do history, so you probably could t- say more about this. But the size of the federal government and its influence in different parts of our lives makes the stakes of any election for the Senate, for control of the House, and for control of the of the executive, just that much more important now. And that, of course, not it's not all consuming; it's not all important, but it certainly seems to be driving a lot of uh, all of those things to be going up. I think they talked about this um, on The Remnant about a month ago. That guy named Kevin Kozar came on and advocated for this. I just I just don't think that earmarks are going to be the panacea that are being discussed here right now. I don't think that's the real problem. But it should be noted that more earmarks is, is going to make the, the stakes of elections higher, not lower. And it's going to increase the involvement in the federal government in everybody's lives. So I'm totally against it, but you know, I, I see what you're saying. I, I just, I mean, 
imagine a, a, a future where the campaign for, you know, the house district isn't so much how much you know, I, I was the Trumpiest of Trump, Trump Republicans in this district, and therefore I should be elected. And, and now it's, you know, I brought the, you know, the bridge to whatever the library here or something uh, to that effect. Um, yeah, Panther Island, go look it up. It's in Fort Worth. Oh, I know. I know about it. Uh, <laughs> I Are you a fan? I mean, that's like an earmark of earmarks. And I'm a fan. Kay Granger fan. has had like family members profiting from that for years, millions of dollars going to her family members. Well, hey, and I'm a fan of Panther Island Beer um, or Panther Island Brewing Company. I mean, they do a really, really good job uh, making that beer right there near Panther Island. No, I mean, but look, I mean, it's not like your earmarks don't exist. Wasn't uh, part of the, uh, the, uh, the, what was it called? The American Protection, whatever this $2 trillion thing that just passed. There was a huge bailout for San Francisco, which, of course, is the district that uh, Speaker Pelosi represents. So, uh, you know, I look, I get it. I understand that there's a there's a problem with it. I was generally against earmarks. Uh, I, but at the same time, I, I like the notion or I'm, I'm being persuaded by the notion that it, it, it's a possibility. That instead of nuking the filibuster, you create incentives to where you don't need to nuke the filibuster. Uh, if you just create a, a possibility where people can collaborate together. The ultimate collaboration would be to return to regular order and pass appropriations bills through their appropriate committees. I was just going to say, I, I mostly agree with Kevin. I kind of grew up in, you know, the Tea Party era of, you know, here's the list of things government spent money on that are ridiculous. Here's all the wasteful spending. Here's all the things they're doing earmarks on just so they can get bridges and kind of had that um, principled opposition to that. But I think um, I think kind of the discussion we've had is, is really important about understanding incentive structures. And I think sometimes it's important, even if the ends are not always exactly what we prefer from a principled standpoint. I think it's sometimes it's important to structure um, those incentives so that they have, um, so that representatives have um, motivation to to legislate and, and collaborate on things. So I think it's kind of a don't let the perfect be the enemy, enemy of the good um, situation to some degree. Um, so I, I really probably not going to like a, a lot of the things that come out of earmarks necessarily as regarding government spending. Um, but I think it would be good to see if that could help uh, with collaboration and passing um, legislation in a more bipartisan fashion. The way it's been sold, at least to conservatives, is that this is what's going to get us entitlement reform. But I'm not uh, expecting that to actually happen. I'm expecting that to, that excuse to get memory hold. Likely what we're going to get is more of the same big government stuff, just with extra earmarks added onto it and saying that bipartisanship is is great and therefore everything's fine like we're all bipartisan big government people now so that's all that's going to happen i think i think that's a great segue both of you actually into uh, our main topic for today when we're talking about um, entitlement reform and and uh, government boondoggles spending tons of money and and not necessarily getting the uh, product that we're looking for and that Again, like I said, segues right into education reform. So, and I, I know Benjamin from West Virginia, this is a, a big topic for you. It's something you're very interested in. And I wanted to go ahead and turn it over to you to lead us in this discussion. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I really enjoyed our, our earmarks discussion, our best of the dispatch discussion. Um, but to transition a little bit um, over to education reform, I know that's a topic um, that has affected all of us because we've all been 
all been educated at some point in our lives. Um, so to kind of kick off that discussion, I was thinking we could go around the, the room as it were and um, talk a little bit about your experience with with the education system, particularly um, K-12, because that's what we're going to talk about a little more later. Um, but if you want to expand beyond that, that's great too. Just go in, you know, as much detail as you want, you know, what types of school um, you went to, you know, if you want to talk experiences, you know, era or location, and we have a lot of different um, ages and regions represented here. Um, and, you know, economic status, things like that. Uh, what your experience in, uh, in particularly the K-12, but beyond that as well, um, education system was, and then we'll come back around and um, I can go ahead and start. So I've been, um, you know, K-12 education, you know, in any system. So I've been homeschooled um, since, you know, throughout my education. Um, I've really enjoyed that experience. It's given me a lot of um, flexibility and customization. I've done a lot of um, big research projects and service projects and community engagement activities, things like that, that have um, the pure schedule flexibility um, has been really helpful for me. Um, but beyond that, um, the possibility to customize the education to my interest. If there's things I need to work on, I can work on um, those, spend more time reinforcing those concepts. Um, if there's stuff I'm ready to move um, way ahead on, I can go ahead and move um, way ahead. I can study all sorts of, you know, great books and things like that. I've read things from, you know, Augustine, Aristotle, or just finished reading uh, Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, um, all sorts of things like that, and really um, discuss and dig into those ideas. So I've done some classes um, just pure homeschooling. I've son, done some that are um, online. I've done some that are live online with a teacher and, a, and an actual class. I've done some in person. I've done some um, college classes. So there really are quite a few opportunities. It's not just, um, you know, pure homeschooling, sitting in your house with a textbook all day. Um, definitely not. And there's all sorts of activities I've been able to take advantage of outside of homeschooling. You know, people talk about, oh, you're, if you raise homeschoolers, they're all going to be unsocialized and I, and that may apply to me some but that's definitely more my personality rather than my homeschooling experience i've been able to do uh, boy scouts civil air patrol museum volunteering all sorts of stuff like that um, to get engaged with my community develop leadership skills workability things like that um, so overall um you know I, i'm graduating this year i'm a high school senior this year but i think i've had a, a really positive experience um, with my education i think it's prepared me well um, to go off to college um, so far my college admissions process is going um, pretty well. So I think overall I've had a positive positive experience um, with that method, which is, you know, obviously not uh, obviously not a big um, percentage of, of students and, you know, people in America, but I think it was definitely um, beneficial for me. So if we want to go around the room, um, Alan, if you wouldn't mind to start and just talk a little bit about your experience in the education system, um, whichever type of schools um, those were. Okay, I was going to, you know, I can't make a joke about it being ancient times because a few people, you know, got me on that. But, uh, oh, gosh, let's see. Yeah, so all throughout, well, obviously we're talking uh, up until high school graduation. Yeah, it was entirely uh, public school. Um, half of it in New York, half of it in Connecticut. And, you know, I certainly can't complain uh, about the education I got. Uh, when I graduated, the day I graduated from high school, I was fluent in Spanish because we had, you know, the best, arguably at the time, the best foreign language program in the country. Um, the downside is, you know, my, well, my parents moved there long ago. I certainly couldn't afford to live there now. And, you know, I saw a friend from high school a while back. He's like, yeah, none of us could afford to live there anymore. So that was the flip side of it. It just got priced out of uh, affordability. 
but well, not having kids myself, I've been kind of uh, away from the topic. So honestly, it'd be kind of hard for me now, you know, to talk about homeschooling versus not, uh, you know, since those issues tend not to uh, really affect me as much. I guess I was going to say, like, I remember No Child Left Behind was a huge deal, you know, when it was passed. Gosh, it's almost 20 years, 20 years ago now. I mean, is that still affecting schooling? Is that, like, still a huge issue? I'm not sure completely on the public school side, but yeah, definitely um, you don't have to be homeschooled to contribute um, to our discussion. It's definitely interesting to hear people's different um, experiences um, in schooling, you know, different regions and different eras and things like that. Um, Breaking news, we are now joined by um, Jack from Kentucky. How are you doing, Jack? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. So go ahead and just... um, talking about the same question, talking about our experiences in um, K through 12 educational system, um, the kinds of experiences we've had and, and things like that. If you want to go ahead and talk about that topic. All right. Yeah. Um, so I've spent my entire life in public school and pretty much all in Kentucky as well. I started preschool um, in Pennsylvania, but I moved to Kentucky before I started kindergarten. So Pretty much I've been um, here my entire life with my schooling stuff, Um, and it's all been public, and me being me, I've been kind of into the whole ins and outs of student government, the operations of administration. Um, I've had my fair bit of um, battles with school administration. Uh, Sometimes I've liked how a school's operated, sometimes I haven't. Uh, it really depends on the three schools I've been to, which are elementary, middle, and high. Uh, and yeah, so I've pretty much just been a public school guy my entire life. Okay, thank you. Um, we'll go ahead and jump to um, Angie from Ohio if you want to comment on this. I know I know you told us before about what your parents used to say about Catholic school. Yeah, I was going to include that. I went to, um, in kindergarten, I went to a Catholic school. I don't remember much about that, except that I had a lot of fun making things. And my dad walked me over the 21st Street Bridge, which was this huge expansion bridge over the Black River. And that was cool. Then we moved and I went to public school from first to the middle of fourth grade. And then my dad got a promotion and we moved to a different city about 45 minutes away. And he enrolled us in Catholic school. I hated Catholic school vehemently. Um, So when we moved, then we moved back to where we were from originally, and I went back into public schools. I have to caveat this with this was a long time ago, and apparently things were a lot different. Um, And as I have no children, I don't have any personal experience with how things have changed. I loved public school. I excelled in it. I'm a very social person, and I was with a lot of people and a lot of different people, and we had a lot of diversity, and I did well, and I could get involved in everything I wanted to get involved in, and my grades were good. Teachers loved me. I just, I learned a lot. I mean, I graduated pretty high up in my class. I was a National Honor Society. I did well. As far as, like, homeschooling, I probably could do it. I think it takes a certain personality. I think you have to have some self-motivation there. But I think I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did public school. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Definitely not the case that that it's for everyone. But yeah, it's great to hear your experience um, with public school and that it was a positive experience. 
uh, I guess we'll jump over to to Ben from from Oregon. All right, let's see. So I started off in public school. Um, I was uh, I was growing up in Colorado Springs. I did not fit in very well. Uh, Colorado Springs is a deeply evangelical community, and uh, I was raised Jewish, and so I did not fit in with that crowd at all. I had a lot of issues and fights. My parents became more religious as I got older, and so they moved us to Denver, and uh, I got to go to a private Jewish school where I also didn't fit in because I'm really not I, – I wasn't – we weren't particularly religious when I was younger, so I didn't fit in with a re really religious crowd either. I ended up being homeschooled from like fifth grade all the way up until high school. And then I went to high school, I went to a ultra Orthodox schools called yeshivas where they trained to be a rabbi. And I went there for mo for all of high school, pretty much convinced me to be an atheist for most of my, for most of my youth. Still am, still don't believe in God, of course, from the consequence of doing that. It was a pretty, pretty awful, uh, experience. I don't recommend it for anybody. If you're thinking like, well, someone asked me, how do you want to learn? How do you learn how to read, read and write Hebrew or Aramaic? And this is how you do it. Not worth the trade-off, I would say. I was much happier when I went to college and I got away from all that. And I sort of could start to try to find where I belonged somewhere. And I got into be able to learn what I wanted to learn. I got more of that structuring of my own learning that I appreciated that I kind of had when I was in homeschool a little bit as well. Uh, the homeschool for me was very isolating, and it was very difficult for me to be able to uh, get out and r learn about opposing views. I went to a University of Colorado, which exposed me to a whole bunch of left, radical left and progressive viewpoints that I'd never really encountered beforehand, and that was really, really helpful for me because it gave me insight and understanding, helped me sort of to figure out what do I, what do I believe in, what do I follow, and it, it, that's sort of how I ultimately became more you know, sort of went from being from this really ultra religious conservative background to being very liberal to ultimately developing into sort of where I am sort of this conservative with heterodox views that I am in today. And I still work in education because I'm a, a college teacher. So yeah, I teach college. So I'm, I've got, I kind of got, went into the system and have never left the system. And I've worked for public schools. I've worked for private colleges as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting experience, and and not one um, I'm familiar with at all. And sir, um, with the with the uh, you know Jewish religious schools, with homeschooling as well. Yeah, definitely there are um, some families that take it in more uh, isolated fashion. There are some that really do make the effort um, to engage with with opposing viewpoints and engage um, with the community and things like that. So there's definitely different ways um, people do it. But I guess we'll jump next to um, Ben from Ben from Texas. Okay, so um, I started in public elementary school from kindergarten through fifth grade and then my parents moved me to a private christian school that's starting in sixth grade um, so i graduated high school from there uh, in my experience my personal experience was probably actually better in the public school because they had a lot of programs for um they called it differentiated but it's like gifted classes and stuff like that which of course at the private Christian school, they did not have those kind of programs. So I was kind of stuck in the same stuff as everybody else. Um, but you know, it wasn't bad. I, I fit in there. I didn't have any fitting in problems like you did Ben, but um, after high school, I went to a large public land grant university. I, uh, I did a three month internship at another university about halfway across the country. Uh, and I have been a charter school teacher for one year only. That was actually my first job when I moved to Texas. 
a small um, experimental startup charter school uh, here in uh, no the northern suburbs of Dallas, so to speak. That's why I'm actually living where I am right now. I'm still living in the same place because I moved up here when I got this job. So uh, I was a certified as a general science teacher in Texas, and I was a sort of a chemistry teacher. Um, that was an interesting experience uh, because they were trying to do a vocational training, and uh, I've got a lot of thoughts that might fit later on about why that didn't work. I, I ended up getting let go, and the school shut down a few years after that, so it didn't quite work out, but it was something I kind of pieced together within a couple months of, uh, of seeing what was going on there, so maybe we can talk about that later. Yeah, i definitely like to hit on that later. We're going to talk a little bit about different um, kind of school choice policies. And yeah, charters is probably one of the ones I'm least familiar with. Uh, my mother was a teacher in um, in public schools for several years and then private schools for several years. We don't have um, very many um, charters here. I think there's some over in Ohio um, that Angie uh, mentioned um, in one of her, her comments on the channel elsewhere. Um, yeah, we'll definitely swing back around to that. Um, Clifford from Washington. Hi, yeah. Uh, I was raised as a homeschooler in conservative, white evangelical circles. The uh, and there's, there's particularly at my, the curriculum we used was called Alpha Omega, some more of a traditional education model. So uh, I, I pretty much did just sort of sit in front of the textbooks and do the work. Uh, although for socialization and such, we there were homeschool co-ops, various so sorts for us to connect with other kids and do more extracurricular type activities. The, in Washington, the Washington also like you get to school choice stuff. Washington's a very school choice friendly state. Uh, intriguingly school choice doesn't seem to be very red state or blue state, but more regional. Um, it's just historically very school choice friendly. The uh, last two years of high school, Washington has what's called a running start program. I know other states have similar things where, your last two years of high school, you can complete while attending uh, courses at your local community college. So that's what I did. Also, what almost all homeschoolers in our area did. Uh, so we do that. So 16, 17, 18. So my junior and senior year of high school, I was at the just taking classes at the local community college. So by the time I graduated high school, I also had graduated with my associate's degree. Uh, from there, I transferred to a uh, small Bible school called Trinity Lutheran College. The, the, I'll say the transition period from homeschooling to running start uh, is pretty much just a quarter long. The first quarter is a bit of an adjustment. After that, I adapted pretty fine. And the, my understanding is that's, I think, most people's experience. And I actually got very involved with the community college, became involved with student leadership my last year there, very active in the local uh, the uh, community college's Christian club. Uh, I've got four kids of my own now, so I'll say also as far as that goes, I got uh, my oldest is in second grade. Her first two years, uh, kindergarten, first grade, we're at a local uh, private Lutheran school that's got a long history and good reputation in our area. And the got a son in kindergarten and a four-year-old and a two-year-old. They've all our kids did a local public preschool option called Head Start for preschool. And 
we were planning to, for this year, to enroll all our kids in that same private Lutheran school. But then with the pandemic, we thought we'd be better off, uh, for consistency's sake, just keeping them at home. So we attempted homeschooling this year. My second grader, she's done quite well. She's adapted very well. Our kindergartner, well, that was pretty much a complete failure. So in January, we enrolled him in the local uh, public school, and he gets to go there two days a week. And as of next week, will be four days a week in-person classes. So we've now been navigating the uh, public school and the pandemic sort of uh, thing. So, yeah, I guess that's me. Yeah, that's a really great um, bunch of experiences. Yeah, I know people kind of like you mentioned, are often surprised you know, the resources homeschoolers can take advantage of. Um, a lot of people I know um, take online college courses through the local university here. Um, they offer them for like, it's like $75 per class and you can take as many college classes as you want in high school. Um, so I, know, I have a lot of friends who basically apply to college and are registered sophomores or even um, juniors in, in their first year of college because of how many um, course credits they've taken and all sorts of other um, opportunities like that, um, co-ops and things. There's a lot of co-ops here and um, classical conversations, um, programs like that um, that a lot of my friends are are interested in. Um, Doug, I think you probably have a little bit of a different experience than than Clifford did. I think I have a little different experience than everyone did. Uh, uh, I am the only person, uh, at least here to my belief, that uh, started school when uh, Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States. Uh, continuing on through Kennedy and Johnson and, and Nixon. So uh, my school experience was entirely a public school experience because uh, my dad worked shift work as a laborer. Uh, we had no idea about any other, and not even sure they existed, private schools. I, there were certainly private schools because one of my neighbors here is also from West Virginia and uh, her family in Charleston sent her to a private school um, Anyway, so public school, no kids, so I don't have a kid experience, but the public school formed my entire understanding of what education was, but also what education should be. So my experience was in large public high school, where for most of the time I was there, I could sit next to and reap the same educational benefits as the sons and daughters of attorneys uh, doctors, physicians, pharmacists, chemical engineers, managers, executives, all went to public high school. Some people went to Catholic high school. So I had friends that were of the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, um, probably something else, Catholics. Some went there as well. Uh, people of color, uh, we were integrated. There was never, it was just a great mixing and there were, nobody thought anything other than that. Uh, there wasn't any castigation uh, or looking down on anybody from any particular class or poverty level. When I entered high school, unfortunately, my father had uh, been removed from the house or my mom had divorced him, to put it another way, after he lost his job when my father refused to falsify a federal government quality control document for his plastic company employer. So uh, he lost his job, unfortunately, over that matter of integrity. And I started working as a janitor, which the high school gleefully gave me that job, but soon realized that I could do something else, which was to promote me to audiovisual technician. So uh, I went to, we had a full orchestra. Uh, so we did orchestra practice every day after school at out at 3.30 for an hour and a half. Um, we had a science fair club that 
I went many times to the International Science Fair. I won the Regional Science Fair, placed second, because they wanted to give a chance to another kid to go with me to win the West Virginia State Fair, and we both went to the International Science and Engineering Fair and competed against kids from Stuyvesant and um, Cambridge Latin and Brooklyn School of Sci- High School of Science and all these things, and won. So we were very competitive. So my my three years in uh, high school, I played solo oboe. We played a variety of full concerts. We had a hundred piece orchestra. I was vice president of the Junior Academy of Science of West Virginia. I had co- college texts that were given to me to read. So my junior and senior year, my junior year in high school, I took three classes. My senior year, I took one class. They kicked me out of calculus and physics and chemistry uh, because I kept asking questions that I knew the answers to that the professor, I mean, the teacher didn't. And I was so, so anyway, I never took high school, those things I placed out of them and spent uh, most of my senior year doing my science fair project, which won second place at the International Science Fair. And I also tutored uh, a really true genius, young genius who was 13 in calculus and a couple of engineers working for the chemical and plastics company in calculus. Um, I was an Eagle Scout when I was 14 and a half or 15, somewhere around there. Um, We camped, we hiked, we had lots of friends. Um, You know, being able to participate in science and music at that age was a gift. We had a planetarium and we only had one football team, you know. Uh, a high school of 3,000 today would be a high school of of 500, and there'd be six football teams, and there'd be six basketball teams, and there would be one out of six having a science club, and two out of six having a band, and one out of six maybe may even be able to spell orchestra. But the opportunity for most people is diminished by that fragmentation because the large school gives you the opportunity to have those extracurricular activities that people can find their way into like drama. We had a great drama team. We did full Broadway musicals. We had a pit orchestra that I played in when we did my fair lady with the original score, the original costumes brought over from Broadway. So I can't emphasize enough that that experience sets me firmly into the realm of public education does several important things. It socializes students from all types of backgrounds. It equalizes opportunity that an individual can take advantage of as much as you want. So, you know, I, yeah, I read all the classics when I was 13 and 14 at home. My, neither of my parents, uh, my mom never graduated high school. She had me, she turned down a full ride to Chicago. My dad graduated high school at one year of college had me. So, you know, their lives didn't get to go to college, but they did provide books like the Encyclopedia Britannica and a Bertrand Russell's series. So, you know, we could read all sorts of very deep and long stuff, as well as the public library, which was a tremendous asset as well. So we had teachers that were interested then in extracurricular activities. My science fair, my biology teacher was the science fair leader. Uh, The orchestra leader played with Arturo Toscanini, uh, which is incredible violinist. So that exposure, I, I can't underestimate what it meant to a kid who had no father and had to work through high school. Uh, and sitting next to kids whose parents had done well. I don't, don't begrudge them that at all. But what was wonderful was I had the same opportunity to take advantage of in my own life as much as I wanted to. And so did my brother and sisters. So that's where I come from on public education. That makes me more resistant to all the other forms that are out there. And I understand 
that's important from an individual parental or kid point of view, private schooling, homeschooling, choice, all of those things. But in the end, does it give a better society on the whole? And I argue it doesn't, because I think what is most important for society is to give opportunity for all intellects of all kids and all motivations and passions to be explored to the fullest extent. And when you're young, you have a lot of, some kids have tons of interest. And I think providing that farm for those things to grow is important. So. Yeah, I really appreciate um, all your experience. I find it really interesting. Um, you know, people think back in the era of, 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 of walking uphill both ways to school, right? Uh, you had a lot of, lot, lot of resources and, and things you could pursue. Um, so yeah, I definitely appreciate that experience and your points about about um, public schooling and about um, you know bigger high schools. Um, I know a lot of here recently we've had a lot of um, consolidations in the past 20 years or so um, moving towards larger high schools and I generally agree with you on that point for the public schools it makes the resource use much more efficient. It's, it can be difficult in a rural area but I think um, if possible it can make the resources much efficient offer many more opportunities. Um, so I think um, last but not least is um, Kevin from Texas. Yeah, and it's incredibly not fair going after Doug, um, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. So um, I'm, I'm also a, uh, a public school kid um, and adult. I've never gone to a private school. Um, and, and outside of when I lived in Oklahoma for uh, just a brief time in my, when I was a kindergartner, I, I did all of my public schooling, uh, at least K through 12, outside of that in, in Arizona. And, and in middle class uh, neighborhoods, so I had the benefit of being able to go to, uh, you know, some pretty decent public schools. And, and in fact, I now that I look back on it, at, after I was in second grade, I was actually in first grade. Uh, I was in the same public school district all the way through through twelfth grade. Although I, we did move within the district, um, I, I had a good experience. They were large schools. Uh, I, I like I think Ben from the other Ben was talking about. Uh, I was in gifted programs, uh, which public schools offered in, in Arizona. And uh, that, that helped in, in a lot of ways, exposed me to some additional you know, academic learning. It was, I had this odd experience. I was, when it came to like the principal's list versus the, the honor roll, I was, I was frequently uh, on the principal's list. In fact, there was this one just kind of really sad, pathetic photo of me, uh, my green turtleneck getting the, the one principal's list out of the class and then let the rest of the class basically got the, the honor roll. Um, moved on to middle school and, and was the only kid to straight A through that. that we, we actually, I was offered a uh, scholarship to go to a private school, uh, one of the big private Catholic schools there. And, and I decided I'd rather go to uh, a, a different uh, high school outside of, it wasn't the high school I was supposed to go to. I had to get a variance for it, but I wanted to be an ROTC and it had an Air Force Junior ROTC. And that became my life through through high school. And in addition to academics and girls, <laughs> um, my life was uh, moving up through ROTC and um, my parents were very encouraging for that. And and uh, I was lucky enough my senior year to be the group commander for, our, for my ROTC in the first semester. As one of two students, the other, you know, the group commander for the second semester. That received full ride scholarships to any uh, university in the country that had an Air Force ROTC, 
And like I always tell people, like a 17-year-old that is given the opportunity to make life-altering decisions, I decided that instead I would take my community college scholarship that I received also uh, from the uh, state community colleges and moving into an apartment with a friend and live the quote-unquote college life as if that was um, something different uh, than, I guess, going off to a university somewhere and living in a dorm. Um, the first year, um, I didn't do quite well. I was one of those that didn't, uh, was, I was focused more on the extracurricular stuff outside of class than, than college. And uh, eventually turned it around and uh, you know, did well at community college, got an associate's degree, moved on to, to the Arizona State University. And, uh, you know, graduated summa cum laude. And um, um, unfortunately, I, I ended my educational career at that point. I say unfortunately because, and I brought this up the other day actually on Discord, and I was a little surprised about the, the, the response that some people gave uh, because I was simply suggesting to somebody that they follow their passion. And, and I, I get where that, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way because they hear, you know, follow your dreams, follow your passion. And they think that somebody's going to run off and, you know, I, I don't know, be a basket weaver or something like that and, and not make any money. And I don't mean that. Um, but I, I knew from a, an early age that, um, by early age, you know, high school, that I, I really wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to maybe be in politics. I wanted to to do something more meaningful that was in my mind more meaningful than than other work and uh, I was tired of school when I graduated from uh, from Arizona State and the one thing I promised myself I wouldn't do would, was go into insurance which I had been working in insurance uh, while I was going to school I got married while I was uh, a junior and uh, worked part-time at, at a, a big insurance company and they were able to, they paid for a lot of my tuition and they also gave great bonuses and that helped pay for the tuition. So I didn't have any student loan debt. Uh, but I was like, I'm not going to do insurance when I graduate. I'm going to go off and I'm going to have my job in politics. You know, as president of student organizations, very involved politically. And uh, then I just said, screw it. I'm done. You know, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just going to go get another job uh, and, and start earning money. And I did, did well in my career um, and just hated every day of it. And it wasn't until I was in, you know, basically 30 that I finally was like, you know, this is, I, I need to go off and I need to try this law school thing. And took the LSAT and decided that, uh, you know, if I wasn't going to go to school in Arizona, there were only two places I was going to go. And that's where my wife at the time or her family was or where my family was. So it gave me OU or Texas Tech as the options. Um, deciding since we're going to move states away uh, and, and start over that moving to where my wife's uh, family was was probably the smarter choice. Uh, we decided to go to, to, to Texas Tech. And, and I bring all this up because one thing that I was thinking about when everyone was talking and, and one thing is looking back and reflecting on my high school careers, I, I know my parents at, early on couldn't afford to send me to private school. But later on, as, as I got older, I think they could have. And there were times where I wondered, I look back and I'm like, why didn't they send me off to private school? They were very big on school choice and on private schools. They, I think they'd argue that private schools provide a better education. And But I was having a lot of success at public schools. I was able to kind of rise to the top. And then I thought about my experience at Texas Tech. I graduated uh, near the top of my class. And it was kind of a similar scenario where I could have gone to a better, quote unquote, better school. And we've heard David and, and 
Sarah argue about this on advisory opinions, and it's a running argument they have about going to law school. Um, I could have gone to a better school, paid more money to do it, and got a degree, but I was able to go to a not as prestigious law school, graduated at the top, and then have all these career opportunities open up for me. And I wonder sometimes, looking back, if that was a similar decision that my parents made when it came to public schooling. So, but anyway, that's my 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 path through it, and I, that's why I still recommend and encourage individuals that are looking to decide where they want to go after K through 12. That you know, following your passion doesn't mean just you know, if your passion is to flip burgers or to work at McDonald's, but if your passion is to go and and to you know, be a doctor or be a lawyer or whatever. Um, don't listen to all the people that tell you it's better a better idea to go get a business degree and and uh, you know just wear a suit and you know, get a job at Walmart or whatever. So, so I have I have thoughts. I've got I I, I have uh, my first experience out after I graduated college was to teach remedial education classes, and I worked at both a charter school and I also worked in an inner city school. And uh, these the experiences I had doing that. Uh, since I really hadn't been in, in public school since I was very young, really sort of changed my viewpoint about a whole a lot of the school choice issues. Um, one of the things I taught was remedial reading, and in remedial reading, there's a there's there's two different approaches ways you can teach people to read. One of them is called whole language theory. The other one's called uh, where you do drills and 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 uh, and lots of sort of uh, tedious tests and and helping students sound words out and things like that to help them learn to read. Whole language theory is a weird adaptation of Noam Chomsky's whole grammar, th deep grammar theory, which is where if you read to students a lot, they'll uh, pick up reading. So just read them a lot of books and then they'll pick it up because they'll be in the classroom and they're just sort of exposed to it the way that they pick up language. This fad swept over Colorado, it swept over Oregon, which is 49th in education, and it swept over California under in the 1980s It's for a period of time that led to whole groups of students being illiterate and uh this particular fad was very dangerous because it really wasn't tested it was sort of uh embraced at by an education establishment and for a lot of people who had the opportunity they pulled their kids out of these schools and they put they they had them to get, go to get tutoring or they had them go to proper schools to learn to read but i had graduate classes of high school students or people who had graduated high school who were who couldn't read at a third grade level and the ones who were put into that position uh, were not the, uh, none of them were rich kids. They were all poor kids. The rich kids had, were given an exit uh, and the poor kids were put into a position where they, became, where they were not taught to read and no one around them could really help them. And they ended up being illiterate. And so when they went to college, they had to pay for an additional two to three semesters of college uh, to try to learn to read, to try to, do, to learn to do math and to try to learn to write. And uh, I was going, what is going on? Or did, did these people just not try or what happened? But then I went to these inner city schools and no, they, they were, the, the education there is bad. And if I talked to students or parents who were involved with those schools, they had no choice. They couldn't get their kids out of these, these schools that were failing them because uh, they couldn't afford an alternative. And they were locked in by the nature of how public schools work they, because they lived in this district and that's therefore kind of what they had to put up with. And this wasn't always across the board, but this was a big problem that when, a, that when the schools would fail, and this is kind of the philosopher king problem, is that government when run by philosopher kings is, a, is the most ideal form of government under Plato. 
but if the if the people who take over power fall for fads or trends or are are corrupt or for whatever reason are bad the people who are trapped in the system are have no recourse and no options and so a lot of the, uh, the stories i hear i've heard from everybody here are great examples of how education should and can work but i i see how it fails and how when there's a problem the lack of options makes it worse and it makes it worse in ways that are very significant so that to the point where uh entire communities of people uh struggle in this way and i i think it's 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 difficult too because i know that even for me like it was kind of by chance i'm interested in learning and that's part of the reason that i became a college professor and did what i did but my sister went through a very similar process as me and she ended up by the time she graduated high school she was illiterate so what do y'all think i don't know that's my experience I push back. I've got another experience to throw. Uh, yeah. That sort of, I guess, goes to your point. My wife, uh, she went to uh, high school in Tacoma, Washington, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, Tacoma is like southern part of like Seattle, southern metro, and sort of like the armpit of Seattle. Uh, very generally poor city. She grew up very poor, in a rough neighborhood. Uh, but they. So their, her principal, when she was in high school, uh, was trying to buy into this fad that apparently didn't even turn out to be much of a fad, but for a, a math program called IMP. And he thought this was going to be the next big thing. So they got all these students enrolled in this IMP program for this experimental math program. And then when my wife went to apply to colleges, none of them recognized her math courses. And uh, so only out of like five colleges she applied to, only one accepted her. Yeah, there's my story to go along with the philosopher king messing things up. I'd like to to jump in and add um, a, a perspective on, on that great story about the, the philosopher kings. So I experienced this, interestingly enough, uh, when my younger brother, who's uh, eight years younger, was in first or second grade. So that would have been nominally around 1970, and I was in high school. And they were working to teach him how to add using those little blocks. I don't know if anybody remembers the little blocks, but he had a one block, a two block, a three block, and you put them together and you got an equal block and you, did, you learned absolutely nothing about numbers and how to add. So uh, I taught him the proper way. But here's the big point I want to make about that situation in the inner school where the kids are trapped and have no choice. If such a thing had happened in my high school, where I sat next to the sons and daughters of lawyers, bankers, business people, chemical engineers, and managers, I know darn well those parents would have gotten involved for their kids and I would have benefited. Nonsense would have been knocked out by the involvement of the educated parents protecting the uneducated and the poor parents. And I think that is something worth considering in that scenario, when the people who have the intelligence, the education and background are available to mitigate, then I think others benefit as well. This is the role that teachers unions played, especially in Colorado and several other places where that they overwhelmed the ability of especially lower income parents who had less resources to be able to fight that kind of thing. And this was particularly pernicious in places in, in in some of these locations, and that's part of the the issue at heart here about this about this. And that's why kind of I that's something I've noticed as well is that um, that the parents were 
perplexed, confused, unable to figure out how to even get around this. The, the demands to think for things to change were resisted by unionization and strikes and stuff like that made it even more difficult. They, and because they had less opportunities to be able to send their kids somewhere else during a strike, that made it very hard for them to resist these demands. Well, that's because the uh, a teacher's union, uh, it's interesting because both Doug and, and Ben are touching on two very important points. And it, just as a background, the school choice is probably the political peccadillo of mine that is greater than any other. Um, but so I've spent a lot of time in the activism side of this and worked for the Institute for Justice and, and actually worked directly on school choice issues. And what one, one of the common, almost probably the most common argument that comes back is that, well, yeah, school choice is great because some parents will care, but for the parents that don't care what happens to those kids, that's number one. Number two, uh, as, as Ben, you're pointing out, we talk about teachers unions and, and resisting this change. It's because teachers unions, they're, they're, uh, their consumer are the teachers, are the public school teachers. They, their their goal, the, the entire purpose of a teachers union is to perpetuate the current system and to make it better for the current, uh, their current members. It has nothing to do with the students. It's, it's like anything else. I mean, if if you think about it, if a teachers union cared more about the students than the teachers, the teachers union would be, uh, you know, breaching a fiduciary duty to its its members that pay it, uh, that, that make it exist. But the but. To Doug's point related to the, you know, the, the, the parents, or, or, or I think what Doug was saying was related to the parents that maybe don't uh, care or, or, or aren't going to be in, in, uh, available to them. A public school system helps because those, it doesn't allow those kids to fall behind. I think that, one, I think that's incredibly unfair. I don't mean this personally to you, Doug. This is, a very, again, a very common argument because parents do care about their kids. They care about their kids' education. They're the consumer of the good, really, not the kids. The kids aren't smart enough. They aren't uh, developed enough. They don't really know uh, how to make the, or most of them don't know how to make the choices and, and things like that. It's the parents that do that. And what Ben was pointing out was that, you know, there's situations where there's parents that want their kids to do better, that want their kids to go to something better than an inner city school. And they don't have the opportunity to do that. That opportunity isn't available to them. And, and what school choice programs allow are just that. It's, it's the choice. It's the opportunity to allow those parents that do care, those parents that do want their children to go to somewhere better, to go to a better uh, institution or get a better education, or maybe just a safer location, give them an opportunity to do so. That's all it is. It's no, I, I, I appreciate that. But how would a kid like me, who had no money, go, go to a high school with a full orchestra, a world-class competitive science program. Because the, school that you're, because the school you're going to is where every, a lot of kids are going to want to go. That's the point. It, it, really what it's doing, and, and this is the big problem a lot of people have with, you know, just fundamentally with school choice, is it creates a competitive system within the public school system. Right now, it's calling it public school. It's really government school. There's no competition. It's not about... Uh, you know, it's, it, we, we don't treat education the most important thing for our children like we do every other thing for our child. You know, if you, you go out and you buy a car seat, you're gonna, what's the best car seat? And you're going you're gonna to match that with affordability. You know, if you're going to buy your kids clothing, what's the clothes that are going to be the best suited for them? If I'm going to buy them a computer, whatever else. When it comes to education, you have absolutely no choice. You just send them to wherever you send, you know, wherever you live and whatever you're designated to, you send them off to that school. You don't have a, you don't get to make the decision as to where you can send them. So what a school choice, at least theoretically, uh, would do would be allow parents to go, you know, 
you know, now I have the ability to direct the education dollars to where my student goes, and, and therefore I have the choice of where the kid goes. That's that's the whole nature of a voucher. It's not like you're giving the parents the money. It's just the money that's associated with that pupil is directed by the parent, not by the geographic location that the child happens to be in. There's and, no voucher though that could pay for what I had achieved that we could afford, right? We have we're zero we're in poverty, zero money. We're on welfare, food stamps. I'm working. There's no voucher that's going to give me get me to a high school with a world class orchestra and world class high school science program. Is well, there? No, what I mean by voucher though, Doug, is that uh, right now, if and I'll just use even numbers. This is I'm not looking at any numbers right now, but let's just say that in the district that you grew up in, every pupil's per pupil cost. If you took the entire amount of students that went to your high school and the entire budget that the state paid to go uh, for that school to operate and divided it by the amount of pupils, there's a per pupil cost to that. And all that it's saying is that that per pupil cost is directed by the parent. Now, the parents, so let's say it's 5,000 bucks, right? So that parent gets to say, well, my kid gets to go to this school and therefore their $5,000 that's associated with them, public money, goes to this school. And that creates competition within the, the schools to say, well, if we want to have a school, if we want to have pupils coming to our school, we're going to have to offer that world-class you know, orchestra. We're going to have to offer those programs that, that you really liked and that really benefited you. Otherwise, parents are going to choose to send them off to the school down the street or, or you know, across the city that do offer those programs and, and they're going to take that choice. So it creates a competition within the school system to do that. Well, no, no, it doesn't in a way, because the competition that you create by the school choice is an auction for price. And the price will drive, be driven up by the people who can afford it to get the best stuff. And so I can't go to that school because they're not all going to be costed the same. But that's, that's what I'm the, saying though, is that the, the public school system, Doug, it's everybody, everybody gets the same check. I get $5,000, but your school that you can send your kids to that would be closest to me, I could walk to it, costs 10000 a year. No, okay, so I, I have a, something to add here. If, if anybody has read Charles Murray's um, Coming Apart, I, this is what was going through my mind when I was listening to you, Doug. My, my dad has a similar story to you. He's a doctor now, but he grew up poor. And whenever we talk about this issue, he always says, you know, I could never have become a doctor if it weren't for public school. And so I understand that. But I think the, the thesis of Charles Murray in Coming Apart is that things are different now. The thing that is different is that society has naturally segregated itself so that there are now rich neighborhoods and there are poor neighborhoods. And so most of the poor kids who go through the public school system today do not sit next to students of doctors and lawyers. They sit next to other poor kids because they all live in the same, usually urban, like inner city areas. And all that is now segregated. Um, and so what you see is that there's not equal opportunity, even with public school, because of that. I just want to give you an example from when I was growing up. We originally had a large public high school. It was like very old, like it was built in the 1800s. And it was like thousands, I don't remember how many, but it was huge. Um, 
I lived in a township of the major city where a lot of middle class and upper middle class, and I was in the upper middle class section, also lived. What happened is they decided to build a new school in our part of town. Um, they could afford it because they were getting good taxes. And it was like state of the art at the time. It was carpeted, it was air conditioned, it had open classrooms, it had young teachers barely out of college. It was a really cool place. The good side effect of this is that they drew the district so that a large portion to the east of us that was poverty level got to go to this new school. I think that made a big difference than what would have happened if they would have had to still go to the big high school is all I'm going to say. Well, Angie, that's kind of the what I'm what I'm talking about with the, the voucher. And I'll just I know Ben wanted to or Benjamin wanted to jump in here, and I'll just want to quickly clarify what I'm talking about. And by the way, a, a strict voucher system is basically tried nowhere. Uh, most current school choice programs are scholarship driven. Uh, they're lottery based. They go to lower economic uh, uh, socioeconomic individuals and minorities. So, uh, but in a in a kind of idealized. Uh, school voucher public school system, it would be that, you know, every pupil has a pure pupil cost associated with them. That's in the public school system, every single pupil. And the public schools would only be allowed to accept the public school pupil money. They can't accept additional money. So if it, if it's, you know, if it's $5,000 per pupil to go to a, a public school, they can't take $10,000 from someone else who can add in five additional thousand dollars themselves. They can only basically take that money from the other public school students. And, but it just all it does is it allows the parents to decide where that per pupil cost, where that money is directed, what school it goes to instead of geographic location being a determinative factor. It's the parent that gets to direct that that fund. And then you add into it that if you if a, a private school, for instance, could also accept that per pupil cost. And the, the dirty little secret is that most private schools, actually, most pr actual private schools are not the schools that the rich and wealthy people send them uh, their kids to, the average per pupil cost for a student at a private school is significantly less than at most public schools. So uh, it would allow the private schools to compete for those, those, those dollars as well. And there might be an opportunity at private schools for people to uh, chip in extra dollars just as they do now in addition to their tax money. But when it comes to public schools and charter schools and, and other publicly funded schools, uh, there's, there's it, the biggest thing is it's just letting the parent direct the the money and therefore the parent choose where their kid goes versus uh, geography. So anyway, Benjamin, I know you wanted to. Yeah, um, Ben, uh, Ben from Oregon and, and Kevin made some really great points um, that I was going to hit on. And like Doug, I, I really love um, Doug talking about his experience with this public school. Like, that's awesome. I wish all our schools were like that. I wish all our kids had access to that kind of um, educational opportunity. Um, but I think what happens is like what Alan talked about earlier, um, really, really pondering what Alan said, um, going to a school that was a really great school. And now because of that um, geographic, you know, socioeconomic segregation um, that Ben from Texas mentioned, um, now you really can't can't afford to live in that district if you're a middle class family. And I know, like Doug said, you know, um, sitting and studying next to this family of, of doctors and lawyers and, and managers and things like that, those kind of families um, like school choice is not people think act like school choice is this radical proposal. Those families already have school choice. Um, you know, these families of doctors and lawyers, um, you know, if the public school's great, they'll send their kids to public school. And Doug's public school is great, and that's awesome. Public schools are great for lots of people. Um, like Angie mentioned, they can be really, um, really incredible. I'm definitely um, 
that's definitely a great um, opportunity. But um, in many cases, you know, that um, the, the higher classes already have that school choice because they can move, like Alan mentioned, you know, into a neighborhood that has a better school or they can pay for their kid to be homeschooled. They can pay for their kid to be um, private schooled. So the idea behind school choice is not so much, um, you know, destroy, it's not to, it's certainly not to destroy the public school system. It's just designed to allow families um, to choose what's best for their child and what's best um, to give them the freedom to excel because there's all sorts of reasons um, why kids may not do well in their local public school. Um, there's academic reasons, you know, they may just struggle academically. Um, there's, you know, learning disabilities and special needs and things like that. Um, they may have um, social trouble. I know like Ben was talking about, you know, just not fitting in um, with that particular school. Um, I know here in, you know, West Virginia, uh, in West Virginia now, 50% um, of our students and um, in math test not proficient, 35% test not proficient in English. Um, so they're definitely not um, really excelling as they should be in that way. And then certainly effects of, you know, things like, like systemic racism and generational poverty that these families are in areas that are, um, have been underprivileged, you know, for decades. And that's the kind of school district um, they're stuck in and they don't have the opportunity to choose another school district. So yeah, if their school district is one like Doug's, that's, that's wonderful. That's amazing. Um, but if they're stuck in these kind of inner city schools or um, schools that have been affected by um, systemic issues or schools that just um, aren't achieving at their mission of educating students instead of just giving the money um, to the school it allows the money to travel with the student it's funding the student instead of the system so it's not that it's giving them extra money it's not that it creates this um, price competition issue uh, more than what already exists because like rich people can already pay tons of money to send their kid to a private school if they so choose. Um, what this does is just it gives a portion of the per pupil funding that schools already have, that public schools already have, and allows parents to choose um, where they want to send their student. So I know several different policies that have been enacted to do that. You know, there are um, charter schools, and we'll probably come back around to, to Ben from Texas talking about that. And what those do, those are like independent um, public schools. And um, they have fewer regulations, but like more accountability is kind of the theory there. But beyond that, as Kevin was talking about um, with vouchers, vouchers basically allow you to choose which school you're going to attend. And that's public money. It's the public per pupil money. And it's just a sign, you know, if the parent wants to attend the public school, that's great. If they want to go to a private school, it will pay for all or part of their tuition at the private school, but no more than what the school, the public school would be spending per pupil. And then now there are some states starting to pass um, ESAs or educational savings accounts. And what those are is again, a portion of that, um, of that state per pupil money. And it's in a special state account that's the, the parent is allowed to control and the parent is allowed to spend on their students. So um, West Virginia just passed the most expansive ESA bill um, in the country and sent it to the governor's desk. And what it allows um, students to do, it's called the HOPE Scholarship, and it gives students $4,600 in this account, and they can stay at public school, and that's great. Or they can um, use that money to um, pay for part of private school tuition. They could use that money for homeschool um, curriculum. They can use that money for test preparation. They can use that money for college classes. They can use that money for special education and special needs programs. Um, and it's designed so that these families who can't afford those type of experiences otherwise um, have the resources to afford them. So it's designed to, um, you know, expand the school choice that already exists for wealthy families down to underprivileged families and um, 
poor families. So there's all sorts of policies that are in the works for that. I know I mentioned our Hope Scholarship here in West Virginia. I had um, Jack from Kentucky who has to hop off here in a few minutes. I know he looked into a policy um, in Kentucky. So if he'd be willing to comment on that, that'd be great. Yeah, um, and uh, I, this is not as moving on as I thought it would be as kind of a tra transition because this bill in Kentucky um, is a school choice bill. Um, but it's, uh, so basically it's the, it's the dispute you'd expect. Uh, one side is saying, hey, look, uh, people should have more opportunity with their education. And so this is like, why wouldn't we pass this? And then you have another side saying, look, why are we taking money out of public schools, um, which are already underfunded to begin with, and pouring them into private institutions and private schooling? Um, and the problem with it in Kentucky specifically uh, is I've noticed that, you know, we don't, we have had a history of, um, treating public schools pretty terribly as of late um we just um until um 2019 uh we had a governor who was very harmful to public schools um and that's one of the major reasons he didn't get reelected um but there's this whole controversy about taking money out of private schooling put it into private uh Sorry, taking money out of public schooling, putting it into the private, uh, and people were just like, "Hey, leave the private institutions alone and get our kids uh, the, mo uh, the public schools funded." There's been a lot of teacher pension issues in Kentucky um, and because basically we have an education system really messy, and so like for me, I don't know where quite I stand on this because. I almost feel like I would be more yay school choice bill in another area of the country. But because I live in Kentucky and I've had the experience that I've had, there was huge issues in my middle school about, you know, underfunding and stuff. Uh, and people were always talking about it. I don't want to, um, I don't know if I can support it because I live in Kentucky. And we already have this history of taking money out of the public schools. Sure, yeah, that's an interesting um, perspective. Definitely something we've talked about in West Virginia, too. I believe you all had some pretty big um, teacher strikes. We had a pretty big teacher strike here a couple of years ago, all 55 counties. Um, the teachers went on strike um, for more pay. So I'd definitely be open to a proposal um, that combined you know, teacher pay raises, teacher pay increases with, um, you know, lessening power of unions and um, and increasing school choice because I think you know a lot of people say you know it's going to remove funding from public schools and um, I mean as as a pure numbers matter it sort of does but it's like if um, if students were moving again we talk about you know rich families already have the geographic choice to move schools or, or the um, to pay for private school and when they do that schools lose all their funding uh, for that student uh, so this basically, rather than just cutting funding from public schools, it just takes the state funding. Most ESA and voucher bills, um, schools still get the federal and local uh, money for that student, even though they no longer have the responsibility of educating them. And it just allocates that portion of the money um, to the parents to choose. Like I know in West Virginia, we spend about $12,500 per pupil public schools do. 
our ESA is only four and a half thousand. Um, so that's, you know, all the other money is kept by the state and um, then they no longer have the responsibility for educating the student. And then, you know, our private school per pupil tuition is only um, six or seven thousand a year at most of these schools. So they're not exactly, you know, it's not exorbitant prices. And there are public schools that get reported or private schools, excuse me, um, that get reported on that are, you know, cost obscene amounts of money, twenty five, thirty five thousand dollars a year or more, um, 50, 60 at boarding schools. Um, so there are schools like that that exist, but that's not what we're talking about really when we're talking about um, these school choice programs rather than, uh, I think the argument is, you know, rather than cutting funding from public schools, it's just allowing parents to choose which school is best for their child. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not even reducing the entirety of that funding. It's just reducing a portion of it. And then, you know, the school no longer has the responsibility to educate that student, and provide resources for him or her. Well, the yeah, the the implicit assumption when when the argument is that it's cutting funding for public schools is that that's because the money that the parents are going to choose to to use that money to go to say a neighboring private school, and that what's interesting in that is that if that's actually true, then what's the problem? It, it, the, the the problem is that the public school isn't serving the children, and it's fixing that problem by allowing the parents to serve their children. By sending them to the private school, so that that's the implicit assumption when somebody says, "Well, it's going to cut it from public for public schools." It would cut; it, it could actually increase the amount of pupils that go to public schools by taking parents that say, "You know what? I don't want to send my kid to a private school. That I have to pay out of my pocket." Instead, the public schools are getting better around here because they're now having to compete for per pupil dollars, and it could actually increase the amount of, of, of money that goes to a a school because if the school does a good job if the school actually serves its its customers. So uh, it, again, it's just it's creating a competition. It's creating a marketplace. And, and Ben Benjamin, you mentioned something that I think is is important here too. I think that any kind of reform in this area would require a lot of compromise. You know, the the most powerful unions in this country are teachers unions, and uh, being able to overcome and, and defeat teachers unions would be quite difficult. Uh, you know, these are teachers unions that often. Uh, will rail against increasing pay for for uh, teachers because usually that increase in pay comes with uh, like for instance removing teacher tenure, which I know you know Ben from uh, from Oregon you might be able to comment on teacher tenures as how important it is at a university because of the notion of academic freedom, but the academic freedom that you have as a K through twelve teacher you know if you're a second grade math teacher you, you don't need tenure because you're going to give a you know controversial uh, you know, opinion in your second grade math class. Yet we've we've given these teachers tenure just by virtue of passing the system along, and through through unions and making poor teachers, bad teachers, almost impossible to fire. And there's this really good documentary called Waiting for Superman that highlights this problem in New York. You know, there's teachers that are paid two hundred thousand dollars a year to sit in a rubber room basically uh, because they can't be fired, and New York overpays its teachers. And, and but they've done something horrible. Um, so. I, you know, I could see a system where you increase teacher pay, but you give te uh, you know, you, uh, administrations the ability to actually fire teachers. Um, and when you and when you give the districts more money, that basically makes that per per pupil voucher a little bit more valuable, and that there's just a little bit something more to com to compete with there. And and it, even though we spend a ton of money on education, and the idea of increasing that is is something that's kind of anathema if it came with school choice. I think that uh, kind of the return on that investment would be would be worth it, and something I think you can get a lot of people behind. So that you're increasing 
the spending on public education, but you're giving people more choice in public education. And, and uh, believe it or not, and I'll, I'll turn this back to you, Benjamin, uh, here, but I, you know, <laughs> this is something that's cross ideological, uh, cross socioeconomic. The support for school choice and school reform in this way uh, is, is heavily supported, especially in poor minority communities who would benefit the most from this, who will typically vote Democrat. Uh, this is something that uh, essentially doesn't happen for the same reason that, you know, qualified immunity reform and police uh, reform doesn't occur because of the power of these public sector unions uh, over the, the the political machinations that 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 keep it all going. Uh, but parents want this. The public wants these kinds of things. And the people who need it the most are the ones demanding it the most. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, when people say that it's going to cut funding from public schools, that's only if the parents decide that the private schools are a better resource. And um, just just real quick, um, kind of effects of school choice programs. Um, edchoice.org has done a lot of studies on this. They're a big group um, advocating for school choice. Um, they've done multiple, um, you know, randomized studies, things like that, and basically found that, you know, students participating in school choice programs, not students who are already in private schools, already in public schools, but students, you know, participating in school choice programs um, have improved their test scores over time, especially um, once they transition into a new school and get used to that new environment. Um, there's actually studies that have shown um, that seems like students participating in school choice programs are, are more politically tolerant, more civically engaged, and um, that the parents are more engaged in their school's, um, you know, parent activities and parent teacher um, programs. There's actually also studies that have shown that the public schools improve slightly as well um, after school choice programs are implemented. So it's definitely not um, devastating the public schools. It actually seems that some um, competition uh, may be useful in inspiring them, you know, to, to want to keep um, students. And then with um, ultimately they, they generally, you know, cost less for taxpayers um, because it's, you know, cutting, it's, it's not all the money public schools spend per pupil. It's just um, a portion of it. So it actually ends up costing um, less for taxpayers. There's a bunch of interesting studies you can look up about that. And then um, on Kevin's point about unions, um, there's a really interesting article uh, from Brookings that you can look up. It's just called The Problem of Union Power. And it's an interesting chapter from a, a book published by Brookings, which again is not not a raging libertarian um, institution uh, by any means. Um, talking about the rubber rooms that you mentioned um, and, and says in 2009 there are more than 700 teachers in their rubber rooms they would just come to um, come to the room at the same hour as other city teachers leave at the same time got a full salary benefits vacation days summers off and they did not teach at all and it cost the city um, 40 to 70 million a year and probably more um, and all these teachers were ones who were decided that they couldn't even be in a classroom. Um, there were a lot of teachers who were bad who didn't get to this stage. These were teachers who they decided were so bad they couldn't even keep them in a classroom. And because of their union um, deals and contracts and tenure, um, they were left there. And there's definitely also problems with unions um, with, with teacher pay and teacher promotion. It's being tied to tenure and time served and often um, education credentials like getting a master's degree. And basically none of those things have correlate according to studies with actually improved um, teacher performance. So rather than uh, rewarding teachers who perform well, it's been structured um, by unions to reward um, teachers who are there for a long time. So it's basically designed that if you are hired as a teacher, um, 
you'll be paid for the rest of your life regardless of performance, which is a really bad incentive structure that I think needs reform. And again, we could pay teachers more because we want to have um, great teachers um, instructing our kids, but I think it's important to reform the incentive structures because otherwise you can throw money at a problem and, and it doesn't, um, only does only can do so much. So I think that's um, really important to consider when we're talking about um, unions. But one thing we haven't discussed um, so much, we talked a little bit about um, vouchers with, with Doug and Kevin and ESAs um, to some degree um, with, with Jack and me. Um, we have not talked about um, charters very much. So I'd love to hear from Ben from Texas about um, his experience with charter schools and, and what he thinks about those as a policy issue. Sure, thanks. Um, just to try and tell you basically my experience, I started up at sort of an experimental charter school that was only one semester old when I was hired. Uh, they started with about 40, I believe 40 students before I was there. And the next fall, they started with about 130. And there were five core teachers and one vocational teacher and then the director. And that was the entire, you know, staff or other I guess there was one one secretary um, but basically the idea was to have all the kids do independent study on all their four core areas so in Texas you have the four core areas of math English uh, science and I refuse to call it social studies it's called history uh, but the four areas where at the time when I was a teacher this is about 2011, 2012, every high school student was required to take an end of course exam to get credit from the state for each class. So there were, I believe, 16 end of course exams at that time uh, called STAAR tests, S-T-A-A-R. If you live in Texas, uh, you've heard of that. Uh, it's no longer the case. You have to have 16. I, they significantly reduced the number, but you still have to take a few STAAR tests. But anyway, so Basically, we had we were supposed to have about 27 kids in our classroom all day, and they were responsible for independently going through their curriculum and then taking the tests for the four core areas when they wanted to. And so we would help them within all four areas. Unless we had a major problem, we would send them to another specialist. I was the chemistry specialist, so there was that. And we had because we had five teachers, we had one each in each area, except for science, there were two of us. And then for the vocational stuff, they had a two hour class twice a week and it was in graphic design, video editing and sound editing. And they had an amazing setup. They had a room full of Apple computers with all the Photoshop and software. I didn't deal much with that, but we had one special teacher just for those classes. And they learned the skills that you could actually turn into real jobs, uh, creating ads basically for businesses. They had a green room where they could do video and then do basic CGI stuff with it. And they had a professional sound recording studio, you know, with the padded walls and everything. And it was really cool. And actually a few years later, when I did some political activism stuff, there was somebody at the, uh, Republican Party uh, County uh, headquarters who was hired from that school and they said they did a great job doing like flyers and stuff. So the vocational aspect of about it was really exciting to me. I was like, that's cool. You can basically learn actual real job skills 
don't even have to go to college, just right out of high school, you go and get a job and you're working like a professional. So it was a really good idea in that. And um, the problem, at least this was my perspective on it, was we had all these limitations attached to our public funding. So we were a publicly funded school. We were paid about half of, of what a typical education costs for a, a public school student, which Doug was correct, it's about 10,000 per student in Texas, depending on how you count it. We received, my understanding was about half of that. And um, so, uh, so th there were several limitations we had with the public funding. First of all, we had to do the core subjects. And that means we had to do, we were subject to the state testing regime. Otherwise we, you know, we go on probation and there's some stuff, but eventually if you don't have enough, high enough scores on this for the whole school on the tests, then you eventually lose your funding. Um, there were other issues though too. In Texas, we're paid according to what's called a weighted average daily attendance or WADA. And that means every kid in school every day or you don't get paid for them for that day. The other thing is if somebody applies to your school, you cannot reject their application unless you have a waiting list. Um, and so what happened was our actual student body, I was thinking about this before uh, today, I would estimate about 20 to 30% of our students were not we're in this first group. That is a group of students who are not really interested in the vocational stuff, which was the whole point of our our school. They were more interested in the independent study aspect. A lot of them told me they would love to homeschool, but they can't because of jobs or whatever. And so they sent their kids here because they felt, well, maybe this will be sort of like a homeschool type thing. They get to do their own thing. They can maybe graduate early if they work hard and finish their courses quickly. We had no like limitations on how fast or slow. Well, we had sort of limitations on how slow you could go, but uh, no limitations on how fast you could go. So that was about 30% of our students. With those stu students, we found actually towards the end of the year that I was there, they actually did better if they spent two or three days a week at home instead of at school. But of course, that hurt our funding. So our funding was limited, and the way we could do education was limited because of the way we were funded by the state. And that's through a system that was designed for a completely different kind of schooling. Um, and so it really limits you from what you can do so we could not tell those kids, hey, yeah, sure, spend two days at home and do your stuff and then come back here and take the tests and interact with teachers a couple other days. We couldn't tell them to do that because that would basically have our funding from those students. Um, so another, I'd say 30 to 40% were kids who were uh, failing out of traditional schools and came to us as sort of a last resort because they were, their parents were desperate trying to get them through school and said, okay, it's not working in a traditional classroom. We'll send you to this weird one. And when I looked and I dealt with this every now and then, I would have a new family come in and 
I would look at their transcripts of their kid and I would see all these, you know, C's, D's and F's. And I'd immediately know they're not going to succeed here uh, because it's harder, not easier uh, to do independent study when you're a low performing student. You need more instruction, not less. Uh, uh, you need more guidance, not less. You can't be thrown into a room uh, you know, that's quiet all day and be expected to independently do your work when you're that kind of a student. But we could not reject them because we had no waiting list. And so I basically, we were accepting all these students because we had to, even though we knew they, they were not going to succeed in our program. That's another limitation of public funding, uh, that, at least that I saw in our situation. Um, the, other, the remaining 20 to 30%, I know my, my numbers probably don't add up to 100 here. I, I, think, I think it's more like 40, 40, 20. The remaining 20% of our students were students that were actually genuinely interested in the vocational aspect. Some of them were considering going to art schools uh, in music and things like that, and they were genuinely interested in the performing arts. They were interested in things like graphic design. They were artsy kids, you know. Um, one of them ripped me a CD and gave it to me. He's like all excited about his music and everything. So we had a small number of those. Um, and for them, it probably worked pretty well. Uh, but again, we were limited. We couldn't just accept kids who fit the vocational profile that we were looking for uh, because we, we couldn't reject anybody. So my perspective on this is I, I think vocational schooling is a necessary adjustment that our system needs to make. Um, but it's going to be very difficult to do it with public funding because public funding is designed only for the traditional model. And we call it traditional, but it's really very new. Uh, it's only around the turn of the last century is something like less than 5% of American adults had high school degrees. You have all these state laws that were passed in the teens, 20s, and 30s of the, of the previous century that require students to be in school up to ages 16 through 18 that are still on the books. Um, by 1950, still roughly about half of American adults had a high school degree. So the situation we have now where everyone is expected to have a high school degree is not very old. And so when I call it a traditional, I mean the kind that we grew up with, um, but it's really very new. And if you, if you have a, a state controlled system that is designed to fund that kind of classroom instruction all the same way. All the standards are going to be tailored to that. All the standards are going to be about that, these academic, basically college prep subjects. And it's going to be very, very difficult to, to, to enact vocational schooling at, in the high school level because you're with, with public funding, because you're going to be subjected to all the same standards as the regular sort of college prep uh, course. And one last thing before I finish here, me personally, when I went to high school in a private Christian school, 98%, they, they, they threw this number around all the time, 98% of, of the students in my high school went to college. And I thought that was just normal. Like I thought everybody went to college. But when I did this charter school here in Texas, remember about 40% of my students were underachieving students academically. 
and I would talk to them about going to college and they'd laugh at me. Like, I'm not going to college. And what I realized, I, when I, this was about the same time I started getting into like National Review and uh, the more political side of things, is what I realized was statistically only about 25% of American adults have a college degree. What, what is the other three quarters doing? And why did they spend all that time in high school doing nothing but college preparatory courses? And I just feel that's a huge waste of resources and time. And, and a lot of these kids, you talk to them, they know they're not going to college. Why stick them in a one-size-fits-all college preparatory course? Why not use the four years of high school to get them some actual job skills? And I just feel it's, that's going to be very difficult under a public-funded system. I just want to comment really quickly that we have a vocational high school here. It did very well when I was going to school and still is. It may have something to do with the area I'm in because there's a lot of blue collar workers. I think vocational schools are a great idea. Yeah, I was gonna add, uh, you know, Ben, you've brought up so many good points. Uh, it, really appreciate your your knowledge and your, your input on this topic because uh, when, when I was on the court as, as a clerk, Texas Supreme Court as a clerk, I had a, worked on a specific case that dealt with charter schools. And, uh, you know, even aside from my own activism and, and knowledge of all of this, one thing that gets lost in the debate related to charter schools is that, you know, people believe that charter schools are what they sell themselves to be, which is uh, that they're this, this entirely different alternative that just accepts public funds. But they actually have a lot of constraints placed on them. They have to they still have a certain curriculum uh, or at least guidelines that they have to follow that's that at least in texas and i'm speaking of texas specifically uh they have guidelines they have to follow uh curriculum guidelines uh just like you were talking about the, the way the pay works and, and and all of these other uh restrictions and in the case that i worked on that was real frustrating because it, it it uh i didn't it was involved in the writing of the opinion i was involved in in whether the court would would grant the the petition for review and uh, it, when the decision eventually came out, it didn't exactly go the way that I would have wanted it to go, um, although I did grant review. And, and the, the issue in that case was that, uh, one of the issues in the case was that, you know, charters are usually started by private entities. They're started by private companies. And the, the charter is essentially a contract. That's what a charter is, right? So you have like a contract with the state, but the state has the ability to just change the rules all the time and effectively nullify the charter. So how do you convince investors to invest in a charter school program if they'll invest all these millions of dollars and then the state changes the rules, which the by changing the rules shuts the charter down? Not necessarily because there was anything wrong with the charter, uh, or maybe there was something wrong with the charter, but it could have been just that the rules were changed so that once the rules were changed, the they, they could no longer exist. So. Anyway, so there's, I bring all this up because there's a lot of, you know, things out there, myth out there about charter schools. One, one of the myths is that they fail all the time, which is ironic considering how bad a lot of public schools are and how much they fail. Uh, but that's, that's the point. I mean, the, the, the charter schools might fail, uh, just like private schools might fail, just like public schools might fail. Uh, but it allows an opportunity to, to make some changes. And I, I think that at least over here in the Fort Worth ISD, and several of the like uh, the school districts that my firm represents, the, there's a lot more uh, vocational 
options being offered for high school students. In fact, the Arlington ISD has some of these amazing, they're the huge facilities, huge facilities that have, you're talking about shop class. I'm talking about you have like, like the highest in tech multiple shop classes. You have uh, nursing programs that are like little mini hospitals. So you have, it is just, it's amazing. And it's all with this idea that giving students the opportunity to get out of that, as Ben mentioned, that, that college prep and say, you know what, I don't want to go to college. I, I would like to be a nurse and they might be able to graduate. You know, my niece in Oklahoma right now, she's going to graduate high school next year and she's going to graduate and also have her CNA, uh, even though she's probably going to go to college and play softball. Um, she's, uh, you know, already got that, 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 uh, start on her career post softball after college. Um, cause again, college is her way to play softball, not, not the way to get her the career she's looking for. So, um, anyway, I, I thought that was real interesting and, and, and how you brought that up and, and, and everything. Um, I did want to make one quick note on, on homeschooling and, uh, I've now met three people <laughs> that have done homeschooling to them or in this, this, uh, this fan pod. And of course, that's a very small sample, but I, I'm inc increasingly impressed by uh, when I meet individuals that were homeschooled because the perception of homeschool by those that want to characterize homeschooling as some kind of crazy thing. Uh, when you know, I think as Ben just mentioned, you know, a hundred years ago, a lot of people were <laughs> were homeschooling their kids. In fact, probably most people homeschooled their kids. Um, but the perception is you get these uneducated, uh, socially awkward individuals. And you know, one of my best friends in the world uh, went to a private Christian university, graduated first in her class, went to the, the, I met her in law school. She went to law school. She was one of the top students, clerked in the Supreme Court of Texas, and now has a, a successful law practice. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in here, there's two in, in this room that, that have, uh, you know, Clifford's successful already. And I think Ben's got a, Benjamin's got a, a pretty bright future. And I think that you know, of course, it's anecdotal evidence, but it, you know, at some point it becomes uh, more than just an anecdote and uh, speaks a lot to uh, to homeschooling as an option as well. I uh, I was also homeschooled uh, for part of my high school high school and uh, most of my uh, K through K uh, the K through eight programs. I was. Well, there's four. Uh, <laughs> there is. But I, I have to say that look, there there's something to the uh, perception too, though. York. I'm in favor of the school choice because it provides opportunities, and right now there aren't. Not that it's going to be a solutions. Homeschooling, uh, in like the fact that Benjamin W. read Nietzsche is reading Nietzsche, and, and his homeschooling program is incredible. My homeschooling program was not like that, and uh, I I have uh, siblings or other people who have been homeschooled who left homeschooling pretty much uneducated, so it happens that way too. And this is this is a problem that I see is that in my encountering and frustrations with with encountering people in charter schools, encountering private schools, encountering voucher programs and all that stuff is that um, all of these systems are, are flawed in some way. Public schools are flawed. The, the only thing I've, I've learned though in the most of this is that public schools are also deeply flawed and that when the public school is flawed in a particular kind of fashion where it deprives students of education and there's no alternative, that's a, that's a lot worse. I don't know that any of these solutions are going to be Fixing it, I know that there are that there's plenty of examples and that I've seen in practice where um, the idea of school choice is not is as not is not as uh, effective as what actually happens in practice. And so I always I always think this is a big thing about people who this has been been a big sort of like 
thing like bothers me, like Jonah gets bothered by things, is the idea that the free market is great is not really true. The free market is usually better than the alternatives, but it's not great. And this is kind of the thing about schools and school choice and stuff like that is that sometimes great happens. It occurs. You you encounter that right combination, that system that works out right. Uh, but it's not guaranteed and it's not it, – it's, it's often the case that you're dealing more with the question of this is better than the alternatives. And so while I particularly did not care for the private schools that I was sent to, the religious ones, I thought that they indoctrinated me, that they were really bad, that I was poor in education, and I'm a self-educated individual – I ended up not favoring like public schools because I saw how when those failed and the students in particular, since I'm teaching community colleges are from these very poor communities are incredibly harmed by this. But that sort of swayed me toward the idea that, look, this isn't going to work either. We have to go with the school choice option. The, the, um, and that public, the idea that we're going to fix public schools or pour more money into public schools or give them the better, better system. I could see that it doesn't work. I definitely, um, I agree with definitely a lot of what you said. Certainly, homeschooling is not for everyone, and certainly it will produce Madison Cawthorns, um, who was who was homeschooled. It will produce um, Jenna Ellis, who was homeschooled. Um, you will have people like that, and that's definitely you know something that happens. But you have people like that, and people who who just like you mentioned, you know, really just weren't educated, come out of all the different systems, and. Um, Certainly, I know some homeschoolers who take who take very different approaches um, than I do than, than my family does. Um, I've really enjoyed it because of the the customization and flexibility it allows to me. But it's certainly not for everyone, and it's certainly not going to end up um, with perfect outcomes for everyone. But yeah, I basically end up um, where you, you where you said about school choice because I think ultimately it's going to end up on average with better outcomes if we leave that accountability and those choices um, with the parents and the families rather than with um, teachers unions. Um, who are you know mo more focused on the teachers than the students? Um, that's kind of where I come down on that. I think certainly, yeah, there are people who have bad experiences with homeschooling, um, for sure. Um, but there's also bad experiences in those other programs as well. Um, so we'll try to sort of head towards the end here. We're going, uh, you know, significantly long. Probably had to split this up into two parts. But I was wondering, um, Alan or Clifford, do either of you have any thoughts? Um, and then we'll probably head towards Doug. Um, and Doug, I'm sure, has has a great question for us. And then um, head towards the end here, if Alan or Clifford, if you, either of you have any um, ending thoughts here. Yeah, I got a few. Uh, so one thing that stood out to me in some of these conversations is the importance of how everything's different in different regions and areas. The, and because they all have just different unique struggles. Like Jack, I think, particularly highlighted this with he likes the idea of vouchers in theory, but he doesn't think he likes it given the particular situation in Kentucky. Um, you know, Doug talked about how you know, the larger schools, you know, being able to thus maybe have better things like you know world class orchestras and the like. Uh, we had a situation though here uh, in my area, Pasco, Washington, Pasco High School was this huge school. I think one of the largest, if not the largest, in the state in terms of number of students. And they did have, like, I think their drama program was supposed to be really good. Their football team was just always absurdly good. Uh, but they also had classrooms that uh, were just, you know, like, kit. there was no room, like, a standing. Kids were having to stand up in class because there weren't enough seats and it was just too crowded. As student-teacher ratios are just all sorts of crazy. And part of the reasons for that were some particular local challenges. We've got three 
pretty much equal sized cities all right next to each other. And Pasco's uh, the one people like to move to, particularly because their property taxes are low. And uh, so whenever schools, you know, the Pasco School District was hoping to raise property taxes for more funds for school, the you know, people rejected that because the whole reason they moved to Pasco in the first place is because they had low property taxes. Uh, so it's like this unique social problem where, you know, they eventually, it was it, uh, they, they had to break up the school just to make sure student, like, student-teacher ratios weren't absurdly bad. Uh, the, I also am thinking of just the importance of the, the experiments of democracy, regional uh, places trying different things like the, you know, I think Kevin brought up, you know, who's even really tried about your program yet? Like I am definitely attracted to it in theory. Um, but it'd be nice just to see some people try it, <laughs> see what happens. Um, and yeah, so I guess the two big things that stand out to me are the importance where I don't, I don't think there's like a one size fits all thing here for education. And yeah, let's hope, Maybe some of you at least try some of these things more just to, so we can see, does these work or not? What are the outcomes? That's great. Thank you. Um, Alan, do you have any thoughts to, as we start to wrap up? Actually, I'm just going to just lay out a data point, you know, and charter schools, I guess. Uh, you know, in 2014, in the Georgia governor's and Senate race, an issue that was considered to have tipped the race to Republicans was charter schools in that, you know, from what some of the voting data showed, it actually had a lot of support. You had uh, support among African-American women in uh, in Atlanta, who I believe, you know, stayed home actually, you know, over the issue because the Democrat candidate for governor was against charter schools. And you actually had the case where David Perdue, the Republican Senate candidate, won Fulton County, heavily Democrat area, you know, which was attributed to... Uh, the charter school issue. I just found that to be an interesting data point. It just, yeah. And although I'm just going to do kind of a totally not school thing, but just on the other extreme, I just kind of, you know, think there's this one uh, high school, Grayson High School, that I'm about, oh, 20 miles away from. And a lot of uh, big name Division One football schools. College colleges recruit out of that school, and I know the high school coach there. They actually move people into the district just to play <clears throat> football. It's really fascinating about the um, Georgia election, um, as, as several people have talked about before, about it being kind of an intra-partisan, cross-partisan issue. And then yeah. uh, you know, the point Jonah loves to make about Republicans need to talk about cities. We have policies; you know, they have policies that can that can address um, issues facing urban communities. That's really good really good point on that and yet there, there's a public high school um in that here in southern west virginia and they'll get um students from like other countries that come in to play um like football and basketball there it's kind of crazy um so yeah i know doug has a really um thought-provoking question for us um so if doug would like to go with that um, that'd be great thank you very much benjamin um so here's the question and, and first of all, I want to say I'm very encouraged by the situation that was you just talked about, Alan, in, in Atlanta and in Georgia. So not having kids, I, I can't say I'm contemporary at all other than listening to everybody. But here's the question. Show me the poor labor working minimum wage family kid. Show me the fully paid path, just like public high school, to a school choice or charter. No tuition. And I'll gladly walk a mile like I used to. 
My charter school required no tuition at all. Most charter schools don't. Yeah, the charter schools I worked uh, that I was involved with in Colorado didn't either. None of them required tuition. The students could go. Most of the the one that was in the southern part that was the really good one had a lottery system. Right. I mean, the the way that the uh, school choice works is not to add a cost. It's it's it, there's there's no cost add whatsoever. It's all it's doing again is. I mean, there's already a per pupil cost assigned to, to children in a lot of areas. In some states, it's very high, and in some states, it's very low. Um, and sometimes those numbers are real fungible because you know you got states like Arizona that uh, you know, consistently will be uh, marked not paying a lot of money on education when it's really not true. They're just spending a lot of money building schools because the the, the population is growing so much. But their per pupil cost. Uh, it is calculated in a, such a way to make it look like they don't spend a lot of money on on uh, individuals or uh, on students. So, but the, but the whole notion of uh, at least a voucher, the classical voucher type system, is simply to say, okay, what is in this area, or or, or we all as a state, or or however we make this determination, we determine what is the per pupil cost going to be, and all that happens is that, that when the parent chooses, I'm going to send my kid from school A. Uh, that's already set to go to school A, and I'm now going to have them go to school B, the, those dollars that are already uh, assigned to that student go from school A to school B. So school A now has an incentive to improve itself so that it can retain those dollars. That, that's it. I mean, so there's no uh, additional cost that's associated. Where, where it gets confusing is when you add private schools into the mix so that you can take that those dollars and instead of going from school A to school B, which are both traditional public schools, or maybe one's a public school, one's a charter school, and you can use that money that's associated with your kid and go to the private school, school C, and uh, that school C perhaps uh, also charges an additional $2,000. So the parent would have to come up with the money out of the pocket. That scares off a lot of people, but the reality of it is uh, a lot of private schools really love this because they uh, their per-pupil costs uh, you know what they're actually charging for tuition versus what the failing public school down the street is uh, collecting per pupil is significantly less. So if they if they cut those per pupil dollars, they'd actually make more money. Um, but there's no, I think to answer your point generally, Doug, is that it would be just the same way it works now. The only difference is that the parent directs, you know, the kid from kindergarten through twelfth grade versus geography directs where the kid goes from kindergarten through twelfth grade. Um, yeah, thank you everyone um, for contributing. I think this has been a really great discussion. Um, I've really appreciated um, Doug's points. We've had a lot of good debate, I think, in this episode, probably more than any episode so far. And it's been a lot of fun. I think I think we all learned a lot, uh, maybe changed some of our views on things. And that's always um, great to do. I really appreciated the points on that, that Kevin and Ben made on, on school choice that, that Tragic made and, and Kevin made talking about um, unions. Uh, I think we've all had a really great discussion. So um, now I'm going to hand it over to Angie for our game, and she'll explain the game and give us our headlines um, and and run that. So um, toss it over to Angie. Okay, I'm going to do a game we call To Be or Not To Be. The premise is I'm going to read you five headlines, and you have to determine whether it's from the bee and his satire, or it's from another source and it's actually the truth. I'm going to caveat this with this week. For some reason, it was hard to find totally political stories on both sides. But I think it'll still work. 
So our first headline is Boston mom calls 911 over son's video game habit. The second one is researchers say cookies are world's healthiest snack. The third one is English courses to replace study of Shakespeare with group readings of the book Anti-Racist Baby. The fourth is woman uses mom voice to scare bear away from port. And the fifth one is, think women can't fight? Here are nine advantages of female soldiers. I'll, I'll just go in order. So that would be Alan. Totally guessing here. Uh, real B, real, real B. Okay. Ben Northwest. All right. So let's, let me think about this. Let me think about this. This is uh I feel like um, calling your calling on your son's video game thing—that's something that's, that's that sounds real to me. I think some 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 would do that. Second one again. Researchers say cookies are world's healthiest snack. Yeah, that's parody. Uh, I know that they want to kick Shakespeare out of the curriculum, but I doubt that they're replacing it with anti-racist baby. That sounds like a satire move. So that's partially based on truth to me. Let's see the fourth one. Uh, it sounds real. I, I can't remember. I don't, what was it again? Woman's use, woman uses mom voice to scare bear away from ports. Yeah, that's real. So I, I'm sure that, mo, that mo, I mean, mom voice scares, you know, yeah, it could scare a bear away from the ports. I, I totally believe that that's true. And that would make that, that could be like a good story. And then the fifth one, uh, it sounds straightforward, but it sounds like it's going to be a list of things that are funny. So it probably is a Babylon B article. So that's my, my guess there. It's going to be, uh, yeah, so. That's my guess. Okay, Ben from West Virginia. Okay, I'm gonna say the um, the Austin Mom video games one is true. I'm gonna say the Cookies Healthy one is false. I say the Shakespeare one is false. Uh, the bear on the, and the porch one is true. That the female soldiers one is true. Okay, Cliff, your turn. Okay, so I'm gonna say. Uh, yeah, mom calling in on one about video game habit. True. Uh, let's see. The second one was the oh cookies. Um, hmm. I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say maybe that one's actually true as well. Um. Let's see the oh yeah. I'm also gonna say the Shakespeare class replacement one is. False, similar reasons of Ben Northwest thought that. And let's say the mom voice one is false. And the uh, women soldier list, false. Okay, Doug. Okay, great list, Angie. I'm going to go true for the video game, true for the cookies. That's obvious. Uh, B for the Shakespeare. Obviously true for the mom's voice and clearly true for, uh, well, that. So, what was the question on five? Restate that so I understand the can'ts and the don'ts. Restate think the women, question. Yeah. Think women can't fight. Here are nine advantages of female soldiers. That is a true. So, I'm true, true, B, true, true. Kevin? So, I'm having a problem here because what I really want to do is say these are all true. Um, but you guys have convinced me on on a couple of them that they they're probably not, and I'm I'm just think that Angie is 
is pulling a fast one on us and uh and me yeah <laughs> so i'm just gonna go ahead and do the save thing since i am currently in the lead uh and uh, ben from West Virginia is the only one that's undefeated. So I'm just going to copy him like I did last week and go true, uh, BB, uh, true, true, and uh, see where the chips lie. At least, at least we'll, uh, we'll be together. How wonderful. <laughs> okay, other Ben, your turn. Uh, I'm just going to go with my first impression and go real, be real, be real. Um, that's it. Okay. So first one, let us know. I yes. got a point of order. Point of order here. Point of order. Amy uh, from Texas is not here. That's not allowed. Uh, yeah. Well. Okay. Well, Kevin is wrong. He's he may be right. He's certainly right that Benjamin is undefeated. But um, winning winning the number of questions is not the same as winning the number of games. And so <laughs> I've won the most games. You guys are such guys. Honest to God. <laughs> I, we're at least tied now in winning the most games. But I think I might have taken over last week after you lost. I'm just saying. I, th I think I've won three games. Won or tied three games. Been in first place three times. I'm not keeping track, so I have no idea. By the way, Kevin, I considered doing that. Because this was really hard. I think I got you guys on the one I thought I would get you on, but I'm not sure. So... Number one, Boston Mom calls 911 over son's video game habit is true. I knew it. I know. I, I, my, my mother would do. Researchers say, <laughs> cookies, <laughs> researchers say cookies are world's healthiest snack. That actually is true. And I think only one person got that. Yeah. So, what, what? I, that was my <laughs> what? That, that would be Doug. That would be Doug. Doug got it right. I, I, so, I went true for that one, too. How, how is wait? How is that? What what what? It, give us. I need some context on that story. What 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 did that researcher say? And who was this researcher? What, like a three year old? I knew I should have got that data, but I didn't. I got this from a site that was actually um, showing you stuff and asking you what was true and what was false. I, be, I, I bet you. Has to I didn't do look with, up the background. I bet you it has to do with calorie density. It has to do with when you're talking about world's healthiest food. When it comes to cost and calorie density that uh it, it could be healthy and i i could you think of it like honey you know, like milk and honey right um you could live a long time just eating those two things uh even though if you Whatever. ate too much of both you would and, and didn't have a uh, active lifestyle you would get pretty big pretty quickly i feel like this is sort of like the like like some sort of like the, like the history channel with the aliens people that's the kind of research from some institute going on that's what i'm getting from all this but well i, I can see your point maybe well, it's it doesn't have industry. to be. It doesn't have to be a true story. It just has to be not satire, right? I did it based yeah. on whether it was true or false. All right, next one. I mean, it could be totally bogus, but if it's not satire, then I want to know about the anti-racist baby. That is a B story. I, it was <laughs> that one is kind of interesting. I get to be emailed to me so I could read the whole thing. Um. In in the the text, it said it was a book written by. If that tells you anything, the fourth one is true. Yep, yep. Mom, 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 mom. Voices will scare bears. I know. Right. I, I haven't seen that happen, but I, I I can imagine it's true. Okay, this one I think everybody was kind of split on. Think women can't fight? Here are nine advantages of of female soldiers. That actually is a B story, and yes, it's a lot of funny things about 
what women can do in the service. Yeah, it sounds like a B kind of headline more than anything else. It's not that it was necessarily like satire, it just sounded like something the B would write. Wow, I'd do better flipping a coin. <laughs> that was fun. I, I got one wrong, one wrong. So I, I think, I, I, th I don't know, this is, who else tied with me on that? I think I, the I only did. one I got wrong was mom voice. I only got one wrong. Well, I suppose we, we walk into this with most of our most of our pride, except for other Ben. Other Ben has has hands hanging. I got I got I got one right. What does that get me? What do I win? I can give you a tro a, a virtual trophy. A satirical trophy. Yeah, in both we give little outhouses as people who came in last. Well, apparently, if you get a cookie, that's a pretty good thing. So maybe <laughs> maybe you get a cookie. Yeah, a cookie. Well, thanks, I'll take it. <laughs> well, thanks, Angie, for uh, for that. That was fun. Um, it's uh, unfortunate that Doug now apparently may have tied me or, or might be in the lead with total wins. But um, oh, we got tons of time, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, but we wanted to go ahead also and celebrate our community this week. We wanted to acknowledge Caitlin from Colorado, who's apparently in Scottsdale, Arizona, competing in some kind of equestrian fair, uh, horse show, and uh, uh, reports are she's doing quite well. So good luck, Caitlin, um, as she's uh, uh, doing that there. And then um, uh, before we conclude, uh, Angie, you wanted to go ahead and share a poem. Yes. Um, the title is Windswept, but I've titled this at least 10 times. I don't really like any of them, <laughs> but here's the poem. Silence descends soft as cat's paws. In abrupt stillness, I can hear God breathing. In the recesses of my soul, someone whispers my name. Are you ready? And awaits. On the precipice of being swept away, he leans over and kisses me. Lightning strikes, thunder crashes. I come home through the eye of the storm. That's it. Wonderful. I dig it. Thank you. Fantastic. That was a great poem. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing. So, well, I uh, wanted to go ahead and thank everybody for listening this week and anybody who stuck around for our marathon uh, adventure into education policy and education reform. Uh, as always, we encourage everybody to visit thedispatch.com and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Um, I mean, if you're listening to this fan pod, but you haven't subscribed to the dispatch, you might have some issues. Um, also, join us on the unofficial Discord where you can continue the conversation, uh, of course, in the comments section. So uh, with that, we will see you next time. Oh, you want this is a podcast. Wow.